This episode is sponsored by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for around 14 years now and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience, a 15% discount, not on one purchase, but continuously. And I'll give you that code in just a moment. But I want to do a product showcase on their new Atlas sneakers and boots. So I'm a big believer in the fact that footwear can either improve our health or break down our health. And the Atlas sneaker actually has a new foam system that disperses the body weight, whether just the body weight, whether it's a a vest and a gun, whether it's EMS bags being carried. And on top of that, they're lightweight, despite having the same protection that's required in the tactical space. So I have a pair of Atlas sneakers myself, and I can attest they're extremely comfortable. On top of footwear, of course, 5.11 offers a gamut of uniforms and equipment, whether it's plate carriers, backpacks, flashlights, you name it, they have it. All you have to do is go to 5.11tactical.com and use the code SHIELD15. That's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 5.11tactical.com and you will save every time you purchase. And to learn more about the company 5.11 Tactical, You can listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 441 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome back on the show, Dr. Chris Colvin. Now, I wanted to push this episode out immediately. The reason being, Chris once again brought some incredible middle-of-the-road common sense information when it came to this last few months and covid So some very optimistic perspectives when it comes to the science, when it comes to recovery of the patients that have COVID, the efficacy of the vaccinations. But then we cover some other topics, the heroism during the Texas ice storm, the incredible advances they've made treating HIV and so many other areas. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on. Subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating elevates this podcast, making it more and more visible and therefore easy for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Chris Colvin. Enjoy. Chris, I just want to say, firstly, welcome back to the Behind the Shield podcast. Uh, We had such an amazing conversation late last year, and I know a huge amount has happened since then. So I'm looking forward to this conversation. Where are we finding you? That's that's an even better question. Where are we finding you? And after how many solid days work are we finding you? (laughs) Well, thanks. Thanks for having me back. Um, And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy to always talk with you and I always like uh, when we kind of go back and forth and text messages about things going on in the news. But um, I have just finished up nine out of 10 uh, days of work. So like I kind of warned you, I'm a, I'm a little salty. <laughs> but I did get up this morning and I made it back to jujitsu again uh, for the 5, 5 a.m. class. So I'm kind of nice and relaxed at this point. So it was kind of a nice way to kick off uh, my first day off. But, um, you know, still... Still working hard in the hospital um, as we're all kind of coming out of this long, dark tunnel of, of COVID and, um, you know, just kind of living it one day at a time. 
Yeah, so how long have you been doing jiu-jitsu for now? Oh, wow. Um, you know, I'd say probably four years, almost almost going on five years. Like, we, we had been at one school uh, for a few months. Uh, ironically, uh, so my professor is Travis Moore, um, and uh, he's a second-degree black belt and, and pretty well-known for his leg lock attacks and stuff. And we actually joined the first school because he was there. Well, he had just left to start his own program, his own school. <laughs> so... We had to we had to get out of that contract and followed him to his new program and I've been with him um, since I guess the the early mid part of 2017 um, and then you know last year was just a huge pause for me uh, which was really hard um, I mean for a long story short jujitsu for me is my serotonin and um, and so last year when when everything with COVID was so new. Um, and I was seeing it firsthand. I was watching people die right in front of me and I, and I couldn't do anything to stop it. Um, you know, all the, all the things, all the gyms, uh, the state went down, uh, you know, lockdown here in Texas. And then as they started slowly reopening it, um, I really struggled because, I mean, I love everybody at my jujitsu gym. I mean, they're family. And, and when you do jujitsu, you kind of, you kind of understand that you get it. Um, and I thought, man, I, you know, we, there's so much about this virus. We don't know. I could have it for days and, and not know that I have it. And there's a lot of, a lot of guys, you know, my age and, and, and guys and girls that are at risk for this disease. And, and so it was a weird thing because I felt like if I went to the gym, I'd actually hurt people I cared about, but I needed the gym because, um, I needed it for my mental health and for my fitness and everything else. And so it was last year was kind of a hard, hard break. Um, uh, I maybe made it, uh, a handful of times last year <clears throat> and now that everyone's getting vaccinated and I got vaccinated months ago and, um, uh, I'm, I'm well into my second week back now. So <laughs> beautiful. It's funny you say that cause I'm actually starting tomorrow. I got a, I got a beautiful gear I just ordered from, um, it's actually a, the, the British, um, company through dark and the, uh, nonprofit, uh, reorg, which is the Royal Marines Jiu Jitsu. Um, and, uh, this beautiful lightweight gi and it came today. So it was basically God's way of saying, all right, tomorrow you have zero <laughs> excuses. You got this shiny new gi, you got a rash guard, you got all this stuff. But yeah, I mean, it's my last year was, it was part COVID and part, you know, healing knee injuries. So, uh, yeah, yeah, but no excuses now. So I can't wait. But it's funny you said about, you know, the, the 5 a.m. refreshing you. I've always said, if you do jujitsu or Muay Thai or something, you, it's impossible to get road rage when you're driving home you know it, yeah, you just you totally. can just see that tangible stress relief absolutely i mean it is it all i you know when people ask me i'm in a lot of different you know physician groups and stuff like that online and they're like what do you do to to deal with stress and stuff and i said well up until last year i said it's jujitsu i mean i can't recommend it enough for um for everybody for families and and, and spouses and law enforcement, firefighters, and EMS, and doctors and nurses, you name it. I mean, everybody, everybody has found something. That's what's so cool about it. But uh, it's, uh, it has been nice. I, I, I don't like gi, but I'm going to the gi class Wednesday morning at 0500. Um, I'm more of a no gi guy, but you know, I mean, what, what do you expect from a, a gorilla powerlifter mentality? Um, but the gi is slick, man. I mean, it really, it's its such a cool deal to use someone's clothes as a weapon. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I did no gi for most of my time too. So when I started training gi, it was just like, oh dear. It was just choking me out. And I'm like, how did you do that? 
<laughs> but yeah, so but I think both, especially in Florida, you, you know, Austin and Florida, I think it's nogi is very very important because a lot of times people aren't wearing much that you can use against them, you know, board shorts and a t-shirt or something. So I think uh, yeah, having both of those skills in your skill set are important. Oh, totally. I mean, I, I got into jujitsu. I mean, I. Uh, I'm a second degree black belt in Tong Sido, uh, you know, and I studied that for, I don't know, nine, 10 years. I was actually training for my third degree and, um, I, I had a really big 270 pound guy, uh, who had just been speedballing methamphetamines and we couldn't even get him on the gurney. I mean, EMS and, and, and PD brought him in. They were having a hard time. He, uh, he was so big. They were afraid to try to I like I put ketamine on all my EMS protocols for for my fire department for patients like that, but they he was just so dangerous. And um, anyways, he he got his hands on me. And in the the funny thing is, because this is what we do in healthcare, we still always put the patient first. And even then, instinctively, when this guy's hands are like on my collarbones and around my neck, there's all these things I could do with karate, but I didn't want to hurt him. I didn't want to break his face. I didn't want to break his arms. I, I didn't I didn't want him to come back and sue me, right? I didn't want to leave marks and bruises. I just didn't want to hurt the guy, but I didn't want him to kill me. Um, and, the, and the best option I had at the time is I, I did a really sloppy arm drag and got to his side and got to his back and just bear hugged him while everybody else grabbed a limb. And then, of course, we were able to medicate him, calmed him down. And, you know, he was a different human being the next day. He got out of his, his drug-induced psychosis and... I'm so thankful that he didn't get hurt. You know what I mean? And I thought, man, I can't, I can't go kicking and punching and throwing elbows at people that, that I'm trying to help. You know, that's not a, that, there's no, that's not meaningful. There's, there's, there's no benefit there. And, and there's just so many downsides. And, and I started, you know, I loved MMA and, and of course, you know, follow Joe Rogan, UFC and all that stuff. And, and it just, it just all clicked. I mean, uh, you know, just start thinking about jujitsu and I, I transitioned from karate to jujitsu and I've, I've used it in a way at work where I can just comfortably be next to someone, even though they're, they're biting and punching and kicking and spitting blood on everybody. I can just gently just kind of hold them without anyone getting hurt and until we can get some medicine in them. And it's been for me, uh, not just beneficial for my my well being and, and and my my mental health and my spirituality and all that, but it, it really has helped me a lot at work. And um, I've been very very happy with with that. And uh, and that's really kind of the big thing for me from an occupational standpoint. Yeah, no, and I had exactly the same experience. I was uh, a black tag. I was basically about to take my black belt in taekwondo. I'd won national titles, and then you know it came to doing boxing, for example, then doing. Um, uh, you know, jujitsu and you just realize, wow, you know, as good as what I used to do was, as fun as it was, you know, the application in, you know, in environment X isn't the same. And then you see it in law enforcement, you know, you can have people that are great strikers, but that looks terrible on a body cam when you got someone mounted. Oh my, yeah. You know, when, you know, and it might be warranted, you know, it might be that they've attacked you, whatever, yeah, but, yeah. you know, if you're able to subdue them and, and even in, in the, you know, the schoolyard, my little boy does jiu-jitsu and we're actually going back tomorrow. It's, I'm going to be training with him. But, um, yeah, you know, you, you choke a kid and scare them. They're going to leave you alone. But if you punch them in the nose and they're bleeding, now who's the bad guy? The one that was being bullied, you know? So I think it's, there's so many areas where 
you know, I think everyone should learn jujitsu. A, it stops making bullies. You know, you, you start yeah. forging nice people when you're in a school long enough. And B, you know, like you said, you're able to, to, um, you know, de-escalate a situation rather than just pound someone's face in. Yeah, hundred percent. Right. Well, then, um, with that, you, you let's let's talk about COVID first. I know we think it was about five months ago that we recorded the last conversation. So, uh-huh. one of the things that I've seen, and I've talked about it quite quite a few people recently, is for me, you know, I've been talking about the wellness, the underlying health for a long, long time. I've also been acknowledging that, you know, as you said. When COVID gets hold of some people, especially if they are more immune compromised, whether they're sleep deprived shift workers, whether they're the elderly, whatever it is, that it's a very dangerous, you know, scary disease. Now, what I've also seen this last year, though, is every time things start to get optimistic, there seems to be another angle from media, government, whatever it is, to beat everyone down again. The most recent one, and we were laughing before we start recording. You know, is now we've got the vaccines, and then the latest conversation is, oh, you know, the the southwest corner of Austin strain is <laughs> renders the vaccine completely ineffective. So get get your gloves yeah. back on. Don't you know? Don't don't try. Yeah. Don't you dare try and start living. Um, so you know, that's obviously my very you know my perspective. What have you seen? You know, what are some optimistic? things about this virus that you as an emergency physician are seeing through your own personal eyes? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, from, from the get go with this, I've always tried to, um, be the, the more, uh, moderate voice, um, in the public and in, and in healthcare. I think that, um, I mean, if, to be honest, to, to, to kind of dive into what what you're talking about beyond just the virus, but but the public response, the government response, it really would have gone a completely different tangent last year if it hadn't been politicized. And I'm I'm not pointing fingers at anybody. I mean, I really I probably identify more as an independent than anything else in life. But um, it it became a a political uh, lightning rod for all things. And so then. People, as, as we tend to do, picked one side or the other, right? And and so you either go left or you go right. And then the people, you know, uh, on the left, you know, hated the right, and the right hated the left, and all that stuff. And and we really lost the scientific and the medical messaging through it. Um, and and then what that did is, as people like me are constantly in harm's way, and and you know, try not to die and try not to kill our families while we're trying to save strangers, you know, day after day, um, is that our, our voices got muted. And so then facts and discussions that we would have with patients and their family members, everything became very blurry. Um, for me, I've never seen anything like this in healthcare before where I walk in and I give valid advice based on good science, good literature, um, you know, about halfway through the summer, we started having some studies that were coming out that were really good. We're, we had hundreds and thousands of our own patients now to identify and to follow. And we really started identifying key trends and, and things that were impactful that really started to mitigate the mortality from COVID. But then I would go into these rooms and I'd talk with these families and one, they wouldn't believe me that the patient had COVID. And they're like, it doesn't exist. 
I was like, oh boy, you know, and, and you do, you do that over and over again, uh, you know, 15, 20, 30 visits in, a, in an ER day, which it's already hard to work in that environment to begin with. And now you're trying to convince people that the world is actually round. It's not flat. Uh, gravity is real. And, and so is COVID. And, and it just it tore my heart apart because um, they just refused to understand it. Um, they they wanted to do experimental crazy things they read about on Reddit. And, and it just it just broke my heart because. So much of what you do in the ER, you have to establish rapport with somebody just like you do in the pre-hospital environment. You're establishing a rapport with someone probably within 20, 30 seconds. That's about all the time you got before they, you feel like, okay, I need to start getting some information, you know, and, and they have to start trusting you and share things. And so it, it, all of that, uh, to say that we are still dealing with the residual, um, politics of what happened last year with how we're managing COVID uh, on both sides of the political fence, honestly. Um, I don't know if you saw it. There was a, it, it should honestly be a blooper, but it was on CNN. Uh, Cuomo uh, was, was doing the evening show. And this lady was saying, she was talking about vaccine passports. And it's like, well, if people want their freedoms back, they have to have a vaccine. Otherwise, if we start letting people have their freedoms back before they get the vaccine, then we lose the initiative to make them get the vaccine. Where's the, ca- where's watching- the carrot? I think she said, didn't she? Uh, oh my God. I watched that and I'm, I'm a physician. And I was like, that is the absolute worst thing I've ever heard in my life. I have never seen so something so moronic before ever in my life. And, and, and I was like, wow. So you just took a big, gallon drum of gasoline and threw it on this little candle in the middle of the living room. Good job. Uh, you know, just when we started thinking that some of this, um, fury over the disease process and how the government responded, then, then they come out and do this. And so that does make me think sometimes that there's an inherent bias in the news uh, industry to keep those negative stories alive, to keep fanning those flames, you know, it's ratings, it's, it's views, it's, it's all this stuff. Social media, obviously, is the instrument that helps kind of facilitate that as well. So, you know, it's hard for people out there to kind of differentiate between all of the noise and then comments like that versus, well, where are we really as a country? Where are we as a community? Um, what can I do um, and what can my family do? And, and I think it's really important to understand I have never been uh, so optimistic and happy uh, over this last year, year and a half, as I have been within the last three or four months, the vaccines coming out and and making it available to the hundreds of millions of people that we've given it to in America so far um, has been a huge game changer. Um, and and I think that what was really good now, you know, stuff that we didn't have last year, it was just time. We needed time to study people. We needed patients to understand and follow. Um, we needed to start giving vaccines to people and seeing what's going on. Um, I was one of the first people, uh, you know, it, in our region, our facility to to get the Moderna vaccine. And I was so excited. And, you know, other hospitals had Pfizer. And so then we started seeing this this data and these studies coming out um, where Pfizer and Moderna were doing a phenomenal job. I mean, just phenomenal job where someone would get the vaccine and then put in a high risk, high exposure type environment 
and they wouldn't contract the virus. And, and they've gone on to study even, you know, now we have hundreds of thousands of people to study. And, and those vaccines are valid. I mean, they're as legit as you can possibly get. I mean, they're, they're way better than a lot of other vaccines that, that, that uh, we've looked at um, for different issues, you know, especially the flu vaccine, if you want to think about that. Um, and then you have Johnson and Johnson. And what was really cool is that Johnson Johnson's, uh, vaccine, um, was about 70, 75% effective in, in inhibiting the, the, the disease itself. So not as good as the, you know, the upward 90% range that you saw with Moderna and Pfizer, but what they were able to show with Johnson and Johnson is that it was preventing death and that it was preventing ICU admissions and people that would have otherwise had it. And they were able to statistically prove that. So, for me, as a clinician, as a scientist, as a doctor, um, you know, as an administrator and a leader and all that stuff, this for me was the turning point for history. This for me was probably the same elation people had when they came up with the polio vaccine or, um, you know, when they when they came up with the smallpox vaccine. Um it was just as monumental of a moment as when they started figuring out how to decrease uh, an HIV patient's viral load. Um, and it, it, that's exactly what we've just lived through. And it's, that's how remarkable it is. And so that's what's led to my optimism and my joy and actually facilitated me going back to jujitsu. Um, and, and it's, it's safe to start doing these things again. And so I think that when we look at these vaccines and we look at these variants and there's, you know, it, there's tons of data out there right now. Um, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines were some of the first ones they studied on the variants and, and they were holding up very, very well with the variants. So when people are saying there's a lot of COVID variants out there, I think one, um, if anything that should really encourage you. Um, to go out and, and get signed up for a vaccine program and get the vaccine. And at this point, we're recommending that, that you can get any of them. You know, Moderna, Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson. Uh, AstraZeneca had some issues in Europe where they felt like some of those patients were getting an increased incidence of blood clots. Um, but some of the data suggests that it was just a, a, a correlation um, because we know that um, some patients uh, were uh, undergoing an infection with COVID um, when when they got vaccines, not just for the AstraZeneca stuff, but just, you know, in the community. I've had a lot of people that, you know, had to wait two or three weeks to get a vaccine and um, they get like a low grade fever the next day and they think they're OK. Or they think it's just the vaccine and then they come in. Uh, sick in a couple of days and, and you realize they're actually COVID positive and they didn't get COVID from the vaccine, uh, we can actually trace it back to them getting COVID uh, and have it in their systems uh, uh, prior to getting vaccinated. So I think for me right now, a lot of it is about clear communication. I think it's about um, understanding that the vaccine is saving uh, millions of lives. Um, the vaccines are good. The vaccines um, are going to help you uh, for, for all the variants that are coming out there. I think for the people that are not getting vaccinated, what these variants mean is that some of them are, are, um, more easily transmitted, uh, than the original one that, that we identified, you know, over a year ago. And, and some of them, uh, some of the variants can be a little bit more lethal in younger patients. Um, I don't have 
data in front of me right now to see how much more lethal uh, these variants can be. I'm not even sure there's a big study right now that's done a head-to-head comparison of all the variants yet. I think just because they're all coming out. But I think the other thing is, again, uh, to try to be the moderate voice here, don't, don't be afraid of a virus mutating. That's what viruses do. That's literally their nature. And, and if you've ever taken Science 101 and you start learning about genetics and you watched um, why or understood why people use fruit flies, for example, for genetic studies, um, you know, because they're, their lives are so short and, and they have so many different generations and, and whatnot, it, it, viruses the same way. There, there are so many different generations. They're rapidly evolving, constantly uh, mutating. Um, but there's a lot of things that are extremely similar. Um, and, and they are similar because that's why they're still a coronavirus. They don't mutate into a different kind of virus. They just develop different ways of binding to your cell membranes. And that's just what viruses do. And so these, these vaccines were developed to train your body to identify some of these protein spikes that the virus carries. Um, so regardless of um, the arrangement of protein spikes, your body was prepared. And that's, that's why these vaccines are, are saving lives. And so um, Pfizer just released a study a few days ago, and they're showing a, a solid, I mean, just ironclad defense against COVID infection six months out now for people that have been vaccinated. So where I see this going, um, not to bring up another controversial discussion, but, you know, people have a very strong opinion about the flu vaccine, right? And so um, I, I think the COVID vaccine will be analogous to the flu vaccine. I think it's probably going to be an annual thing. Um, I don't think it's going to be that big of a deal. You just go get your flu shot and your COVID shot and you're good to go. And now you're not going to get some horrible lung virus where you end up drowning in your own bodily fluid. Um, so I think, I think these vaccines are good. I think so far as the optimism is because of the vaccines. I think it's because of these amazing uh, drugs that we've discovered over the last few months that have saved lives. We're using different kinds of monoclonal antibodies now, IV, um, that is literally turning these COVID patients on BiPAP in the ICU about to go on life support, and it's turning them around within 24, 36 hours. It's crazy. Wow. Uh, I've seen it with some of these patients. It's insane. And it's just, God, I love science, man. <laughs> I, I love smart people. I love nerds. Uh, you know, kudos and a big applause for all the nerds out there. Um, we celebrate uh, nerddom in our house. Uh, we want all of our kids to grow up to be nerds. Uh, I, God, I love science, man. And it is it is saving lives. And I, and I want people to feel that. You know what I mean? When I, I want them to feel the hope and the light and the optimism because science just tried to avoid all the political crap from last year. We just put our heads down and said, all right, no one else is going to fix this but us. We don't have a lot of help right now. Everyone's fighting. Um, let's save people. What can we do? And that's why, you know, last year, all of us were scrambling. We just started joining all these work groups on social media and started sharing data and information and x-rays and you know, being very mindful, of course, about HIPAA. We didn't violate HIPAA, but it was like, what are you seeing in your patients? What are you doing for your vent settings? That that kind of communication around the world is literally why we immediately stopped innovating people around March or April because we realized it was killing people. Normally, you would innovate somebody with ARDS, um, and and for this, we realized this was killing patients with COVID because COVID's different than ARDS. 
And so we started proning people face down. We started putting more of them on BiPAP. We started letting some of them just hang out with oxygen saturations of 86, 87 percent and said, you know what? We're going to leave you right there because if we do anything else, it's going to hurt you. Um, and and we just, it just kept going. I mean, when you looked at remdesivir and then you looked at steroid implementation and you looked at, uh, well, what about this experimental monoclonal antibodies? Or what if someone had COVID survived? Can you use their plasma? And it just, you can go back. I guarantee you 50, 100 years from now, people are going to marvel at the rapid succession and growth of science and medicine in the last 14 months. I think people are going to look at that and say that was a pivotal moment in the history of mankind. And, um, you know, it's it's just one of those things where that's what makes me optimistic. That's what makes me unafraid. That's what gives me hope. Um, I'll, I'll tell you right now, I'm still seeing a lot of COVID. Um, every shift I've worked over the last week and a half, um, easily 25% of my patients are COVID. Um, and I've probably admitted or transferred most of those. So we're still getting sick COVID, but all of these patients that are, are sick COVID, none of them have been vaccinated. And overall, the numbers generally are going down. You know, you got to remember, I'm, I'm, I'm in a biased scenario, right? Because I'm only seeing people that are dying. Those are the ones that are coming to the ER, right? So globally, when you look at the community overall, for now in Texas, and we'll see after Easter, I think, um, I think we kind of jumped the gun a little bit in Texas. Uh, I was all about trying to get the economy and the businesses open. Um, but I think the mass thing that, that should have been kind of a no brainer. That wasn't that big of a deal, but again, they, you know, it became a political symbol. So the mask became a, a lightning rod for debate, but, um, Texas's numbers are, are going down. Um, what I'm seeing in my shifts though, is I've seen a, an uptick in COVID, um, and, and of course they're very sick. And then around the country, we're seeing hot spots now around the country, um, where COVID numbers are going up. That is not something to panic about. Um, and that data is real data. It's not invalid. It's not being, it will be politicized, but it's not being reported, uh, with the inherent nature to be political. Um, but the, it's just math, you know, the numbers are going up because the, the behaviors have changed and people aren't wearing masks and stuff like that. So, um, that's not a time to panic. It's not, um, it's just go get your shots. We, we understand human behavior. We know exactly why these people got COVID. Um, if you're vaccinated, you really are going to be safe. The CDC just now said you can travel if you've been vaccinated. And then that's what's led up to these vaccine passports, which for the record until the end of my days, I think is the worst idea ever. Um, I mean, even the, um, the ACLU stepped in this week and just completely bashed the entire idea of, uh, Silicon Valley trying to create this digital vaccination passport. I mean, it's the ethical and legal implications with that are just astronomical. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's been so crazy because I mean, that one, you know, conversation that you just had, that one kind of monologue. There are so many areas that I know. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a medical professional myself and I'm still, you know, unclear. So I want to pull out some of the, the things I think a lot of people are questioning. So firstly, the people that get sick after the vaccination. And I just had this conversation with my brother the other day. Um, is that because, as you said, there's already, already COVID in their body. 
when we vaccinate someone, we are stimulating an immune response to therefore create antibodies. So therefore, the immune system is being taxed. So they're more likely to have that disease manifest if they've already got it in them. I think that um, what we started with was that. Um, so for two things, one, if you get the vaccine, um, it takes a while. Most people would just say ballpark about two weeks for your body to generate uh, an appropriate amount of antibodies. So it takes about two weeks and it's give or take, and, and there'll be nerds out there that attack me with numbers. That's fine. But you know, we'll say two weeks. And so um, if, if you get the vaccine and you've already been exposed to COVID, but you're asymptomatic, let's say you went to a barbecue the day or before and you get your first dose and you start coming down with symptoms in a couple of days, that gray area is tough because, um, Let's take two patients. Let's take the person that went to the barbecue and got exposed to COVID. Um, I'm not aware of any data right now where getting the vaccine, if you've been infected with COVID, worsens your outcome or makes your outcome any better. Um, and, and there may be a study out there right now, but I'm not aware of it. I try to read as much as I can every day on it. Um, but we, you take that person versus the person who gets the shot and they weren't exposed to COVID. Now, both of those patients, both A and B, both start developing fevers and body aches in the next 24 hours. The confusing time is, of course, that's what we kind of expect. That by itself in patient B, who does not have COVID but got the vaccine, yes, they are mounting an immune response. They are appropriately identifying, wait, this is weird. This, this thing does not belong in our body. This is not normal. Who let all the porcupines in? Somebody get the porcupines. We need to collect them and see what's going on. So that's the immune system's response in patient B. And patient A, the guy that went to the barbecue, well, he, he's got a mix of things going on. His body initially is probably still not really knowing what that virus was it got exposed to. But then he had this, this uh, stimulus shot, and he goes, whoa, well, we definitely don't like that. Um, let's, let's start figuring out what this is going on. So they have body aches and fevers, whatnot. Well, from what I'm seeing, as far as I understand, the person – patient A is going to go on to have their normal course of infection with COVID. Um, and in the vaccine, I haven't seen anything again that, that shows one way or the other. The vaccine is not going to really alter the course of patient A. If they were going to have a mild course of, of COVID, then they're going to have a mild course of COVID. If they're going to have a severe course of COVID, they're going to have a severe course of COVID. Patient B who did not get exposed to COVID, but got the shot Almost everybody, 24 hours uh, to 36 hours after the shot, whether it was Pfizer or uh, Moderna, um, they their symptoms resolved, you know, and and then they go on and kind of do their thing, um, and then you know, we know that within you know a week and a half to two weeks, patient B's antibodies is going to be up, patient A's antibodies are also going to be up, and um, and then you know they go on and, and kind of figure that out now. In patient A, if they come in to see me and I get that history, they got the shot, but then, you know, they turn out to be COVID positive. Well, I know based on the science that the shot didn't give him COVID. That's a common misnomer when, when people talk about the flu. They say the flu shot gave him the flu. It didn't give him the flu. In fact, you can test somebody who feels symptomatic after a flu shot. They don't have the flu. Their flu test is negative. So this guy, uh, patient A, would be COVID positive. We know at that point in those patients, they tend to stimulate a higher titer of antibodies. You can actually measure it. In fact, 
<laughs> some of my nerd friends have been competing with each other to see who has a higher antibody count <laughs> for it. Um, it's become like a, a betting pool or whatever, but uh, it, it patient A, um, you know, should not have any adverse events from the vaccine. Now, that being said, we also know, however, that if someone has had COVID and has gotten through and over COVID, we try to wait at least 60 days for them to kind of let their body kind of simmer down. And then we say that they're eligible to get the first round. And some of them seem to have a little bit more of an exacerbated response to the shot. And, and not in a way that you're sick and go to the hospital and end up admitted or, or, or death or any of that scary stuff. But, you know, you'll spike a, a fever uh, and you'll, you'll have body aches and muscle aches. But, um, I, again, I've known people um, uh, in the medical community who had COVID, who then got the COVID shot. Um, they, they had fever, they had chills, body aches, and then, you know, a day and a half later, they're, they're doing just fine. So, um, I think that it is safe if you've had COVID and you've met that window and you've recovered from it to again, get vaccinated. Now, a lot of people would say, well, why would I get vaccinated if I've already had it? It's a great question. I'm glad you asked. The, the reason why you should do that is that it will extend um, your coverage and protection, uh, uh, later on down the road. And, um, and with that and with the variants, cause you got to remember, it's not just, um, the, the viral proteins that they're putting in vaccines. You know, there's, there's the carrier molecules and the fluids and all that kind of stuff and additives. And that's why, you know, some people who have allergies to different medications or vaccines, sometimes it's the preservatives or the additives in the vaccine. It's not the vaccine itself. For example, for people that are familiar with the flu vaccine, if you're allergic to eggs, um, you know, it's something they like to talk about before they give you a flu shot. So I think all that being said, um, if you've had it, you should still get the vaccine. It is going to be protective. It's going to extend um, your antibody uh, levels and it's going to extend your protection uh, months down the road, which may make all the difference. Um, and I think that uh, it is expected to be a little achy and sore uh, after you get your vaccine whether you've had COVID or not. Well, in 10 minutes, you just put so much great knowledge out there and answered so many questions that I think people are asking. Because one thing I said you know, early on was, I don't think the antibody tests have been very effective. They are early antibody tests. And I think, as you mentioned, I think they were probably taking patients from the epicenter. You know, So I'm imagining that the antibody levels were probably too high. And you know, people had it maybe back in March, you know, you're going to have to have a much more sensitive test. So for me, whether I don't know if I had it or not, I just had flu-like symptoms about a week ago, just over a week ago. And my birthday, I went and got a nasal swab, which was uh, really fun. Um, <laughs> but just just yeah. to make sure though, you know, and, you know, because I was going to do exactly what you just said. If it was negative, I was going to go get the, the shot. If it was positive, then I was going to, again, research more. Well, am I good then? Do I still need the shot? And now you've just told me, well, even if I would get the shot then you know a couple of months would be a good thing to wait so this is all great you know information for me i'm on the list now i want to travel i want to go see my 103 year old grandmother her oh, health yeah. is more important than you know my um you know caution and as i've said on here before i totally understand people's um distrusting because we are asking being asked to be trusted by politicians and drug companies, both of which right. are not known for their ethics. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I, I get it. And that's the thing. The middle ground is I understand why you're scared. And, you know, but here's the reasons, you know, why you should be, you know, put at more ease. And if you don't ever want to leave your house and don't want to get the shot, awesome. But I want to travel the world and interview people of all 
walks of life. So I'm totally fine getting it. Now, another thing you talked about, which I think we haven't really had, I have never had it explained to me. What was it about intubation that was killing people? Was it, was it just not addressing the, the fluid in the lungs itself? Whereas the, the, um, you know, being on the, in the prone position was allowing that fluid to move. Um, I think it's a combination of things, um, you know, and, and, you know, this is, this is my caveat, you know, I'm, I'm an ER doctor that, that bridges people to the ICU. And so I, I talk with a lot of the intensivists and pulmonologists. Um, and I think that it just all boils down to the basic mechanics and, and pathophysiology of, of mechanical ventilation. Um, and, and we know, you know, I, I, I did a run review a couple of weeks ago with, with my department talking about why we really try hard not to innovate asthmatics, right? Like that should literally be the last thing you ever do to an asthmatic. And we talked about because of, you know, barotrauma and we talked about, uh, endothoracic pressures and what's, what that does to venous return and, and all the medical applications of it. But in, in short, with mechanical ventilation and, and the pressures and the peak pressures that were necessary, all of those things were, were adding to this dumpster fire that was just a diffuse uh, inflammatory response throughout the lung tissue. And so, you know, we know that COVID um, is, it just completely just exacerbates the inflammatory cascade. And when you have all these cytokines and interleukins and all these bad players kind of swimming through the body and through the lung tissue, the, the alveoli, which are the little teeny tiny, you know, bubble sacs that, that all the gas exchange takes place in, um, they're filling up with fluid. And, and that changes how oxygen gets across a membrane because now there's all this proteinaceous, you know, bloody mucus in, in people's lungs. And so now you got them on this, this high flow, high pressure, artificial um, uh, mechanical life support ventilation and it, it's just it was exacerbating all of that and so um, as as uh, it, it's interesting to hear pediatric intensivists talk about it and adult intensivists because I've heard some pediatric intensivists call proning uh, tummy time which I think is awesome That's, that sounds way better to the patient <laughs> we're gonna have some tummy time <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you take these patients and you you lay them on their on their belly, and and that's a technique that they've they've done for decades with with patients with ARDS, and it has to do with shunting and and how I mean it's very obviously very complicated, and it would be ideal to have a pulmonologist go through all that, but it um, by laying someone face down, you're shifting the pulmonary dynamics in a way that tries to recruit other areas of the lungs that can oxygenate and exchange gas in a, in a much more efficient fashion. And for a long time, that's really just what you're trying to do. And so the, the switch from, from doing this invasive, uh, high pressure and in, inflammatory provoking, uh, intervention like mechanical ventilation or innovation, what we generally tell the public is life support and switching them to proning on non-invasive, uh, positive pressure ventilation like BiPAP. It just it just really changed um, the the fight against COVID. I think the other thing is too is that you know uh, allowing uh, permissive uh, hypoxemia and letting these patients kind of hang out in the mid 80s um, and watching their oxygen and carbon dioxide levels very closely um, while you're managing everything else. And then if you could get them through the worst part of it, they could start to recover. And that doesn't, I mean, that, and, and you got to understand that when you're that bad and you're proning and you're on BiPAP in the ICU, 
I'm having this conversation a lot right now with a lot of my patients. You're going to have issues from this months later. I mean, there's a lot of stuff now coming out. Patients that had COVID in the summer, they just, they still don't have good pulmonary function. They still can't walk upstairs. They still can't walk more than 50 feet. And they're like seven months out from the infection. And, um, there's a lot of things that they're still trying to figure that out, you know, uh, about for their patients. Um, but being able to survive is obviously the first step. And then going through pulmonary therapy and following closely with a pulmonologist afterwards and, you know, going through rehab. A lot of these patients are leaving the ICU and they go to a skilled nursing facility for a month just to get their strength back and just to be able to breathe so they could go to the toilet. Um, and so then, you know, it, it, that's the second phase after you've survived. So that's, it's, it's what the impact of mechanical ventilation does to the vasculature and the, and the inflammatory process of the lungs that has been such a bad combination with COVID patients. Well, with that, and, and I'm, I'm going to be very tongue-in-cheek now, there was some groundbreaking um, studies that were just released last month that COVID um, outcomes were related to obesity. Now, you know, I, I didn't see that coming. I thought that, you know, being morbidly obese <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't make you any more vulnerable. But I'm glad that we spent a fucking year figuring that out. But <laughs> but joking apart, what have you seen again with underlying health conditions and poor outcome? And conversely, um, healthy patients that happen to have, have been hit hard, at, hard, but with with better outcomes. Meaning, if there was an athlete that had great lung function, that had great, you know, respiratory muscles. You know, did you see that they were able to to recover from it better as well? Yes. I mean, I think that um, the the significant trends in, in those most at risk, you know, we started identifying early on, you know, a year ago. And, and of course, now the data, that's the thing. I mean, we're nerds. You know, we like data. We, we want facts. We don't want opinion. We don't want, you know, political brouhaha. And so that's why you're seeing these studies come out because it started off with a hypothesis, you know, and, and yes, you're hundred percent correct. Um, we're seeing these trends, um, in, in people that have high blood pressure in people that, um, are obese in people that are over the age of 50 in people that are alcoholics and smokers and all these things. Like we're seeing these trends now, let's study this and let's prove to everybody that this is fact. And that's, you know, that's what they're doing is that they're putting these studies out there. And those studies are helpful for us when we counsel patients and when we try to anticipate risk and we're trying to figure out, all right, is this a, a low risk, a, a moderate risk or a, a high risk that this person is going to have a bad prognosis? They're going to die within the next 28 days. You know, a lot of the, what we do in medicine as physicians is that we, we try to prognosticate, but naturally we can't see into the future. So we have to use data and give probability to patients. Um, you know, God forbid, you know, you get diagnosed with cancer, you go meet the oncologist and they tell you what your, the probability of your survival is going to be. And people make their decisions based on that. Well, you know, COVID's no different. So being able to look at somebody and say, listen, in fact, you know, you know, I talked about it, you know, uh, earlier. Um, I'm seeing an uptick in, in really, really sick COVID patients right now. Um, and it, it's one of those things where, Almost all of them uh, were very, very similar in body habitus. So all of them were overweight. Um, all of them um, were over the age of 40. I've had some some really sick 
40 something year old patients lately. Um, and, and then blood pressure and smoking are in the background. And I think that, um, the other interesting thing about the sickest ones I've taken care of, even just yet, uh, this last few days, um, they all had, uh, uh, hypertension and none of them were being treated for it. Um, and so this, you and I talked about it back in November. Um, we just kind of touched on it briefly, but, um, preventative health is huge. And, and it's, it's multifactorial, it's fitness, it's cholesterol, it's blood pressure management. Um, it's, it's all those things. And, you know, it's, it's just one after another. Um, these patients have high blood pressure and they don't have medical insurance. Um, they don't have a primary care doctor. They don't have medications to manage their blood pressure. Maybe they have type two diabetes because they've been morbidly obese for you know years. And so they have insulin resistance. Um, and these are things that, that a primary care doctor could have picked up on right away and could have started helping them with their, their BMI, you know, their body mass index and helping them lose weight, helping them to control their blood sugars, get their blood pressure under control. Um, the, the, the common, um, I don't want to say inside joke cause I don't think when people are that sick, it, it's funny, but it's, we kind of always raise an eyebrow as, as ER doctors, when we get these people who are 65 years old and weigh 280 pounds and you say, do you have any medical problems? I don't have any medical problems. I never see doctors. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> you don't have medical problems because you don't see doctors. It's not that you don't have them. You just haven't had them named for you. Uh, but I guarantee you, you have X, Y, and Z. And so, um, I think that we know that if you're overweight, we know that if you don't exercise, we know if you don't have the, the cardiopulmonary reservoir of someone who is uh, a marathon runner um, and whatnot, that you're not going to do well. And in that when people ask, what can I do to to have some control? Right. Because we all like to have some control. Being out of control is scary. It's like start start working out. Go for walks. You know, just walk two miles a day. Don't do anything crazy. Um, and that was the other thing I was kind of talking about this whole, this, this midlife reflection that I'm going through this week. Um, you know, it, it's one of those things where things just get hard and, and I can't be Jocko. I'm never going to be Jocko. I'm never going to be Tim Kennedy. You know, I'm not going to be James Gearing. I mean, I'm just not, you don't want to be James Gearing. Trust uh, me. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, I, I, I'm inspired by men like you, but I don't have that, that, um, I don't know. I mean, I, it's a balance, right? It's a balance between marriage and children and work and all those things. But what I've been telling myself a lot lately is, um, yeah, you don't have an hour and a half to work out today, but you got 30 minutes. What are you going to do with that 30 minutes? Are you just going to sit on the couch because you're so tired? Well, that's one option. Sometimes maybe you need to do that, but do something for 30 minutes. And and I'm a power lifter, man. I, I like an hour and a half workout. I like doing, you know, eight exercises and five sets per exercise. I mean, I, that's my kind of, I love to lift weights. Um, but, you know, what, what I got in a bad habit of last year especially is getting away from that and going, I don't have an hour and a half today. I'll just get to it tomorrow. And then I never got to it tomorrow, right? And so now I've gained weight, I'm out of shape, and that's my fault. But when I have a bad week like this, I did something for 30 minutes every day. And I think that's something that people need to hear and need to understand that you actually have a lot of control 
over a lot of these big factors that are hurting people with COVID. And so go walk with your spouse, go take your dog for a walk, go sit on an exercise bike. You know, if you like kayaking, go kayaking. Um, but, but do something for 30 minutes. And, and, you know, the other night it was nine 20 at night. And this is where I'm going to get in trouble with my wife. Everybody else around us seems to get their kids in bed by nine o'clock in the Calvin house. We get people in bed by like 10 or 10 30. That's just how it goes. <laughs> um, and so I knew I was supposed to be winding down for bed, but it was also the day that my, my son and I were supposed to do a chest workout together and I'm trying to help him get stronger for football coming up. And he goes, Dad, I'm so tired. I said, I know. I'm exhausted. I worked all day. I'm tired too. And um, and I said, but listen, you think you got 1% left? And he kind of smiles like, I got 1%. I said, me too. I said, let's let's go give 1%. I think so much in society you hear, give 100%, you know. And, and uh, you know, not, I, I love Jocko. I think he's an amazing uh, human being. Um, but it's always crush it, right? It's always 110%. It's always break the walls down, do this, do that. I'm like, bro, I got 1% today. That's what I got. That's where my battery is at right now. I got 1% left. And so my son and I went up there and we we knocked out a really quick chest workout in 25 minutes. Um, and And we got something done. And I think that if people could start understanding that every minute counts in, in 30 minutes here and there, um, you know, people taking stairs at work instead of the elevator. That's huge. You know, I, I see a lot of people at the hospital I work at on their on their little lunch break. They they eat their sandwich as they walk around the hospital and do laps. That's huge. You know what I mean? It's like those things make a huge difference. Yeah. No, and it's funny because you said about, you know, that crush it mentality. I mean, even the Tims and the Jockos of the world, if you look behind the Instagram world, you know, I mean, there's no question those two guys are, you know, workhorses, but you know, they also play hard as well. I know Tim, you know, is very involved with his family and his, and his, um, you know, kids and everything. So, and even me, like this morning, I told you, I woke up, I was supposed to work out this morning. And I didn't because we, my wife and I were up late and drank and, you know, had a date night. So that's real life as well. But when I go coach, I'm going to go early this afternoon and make up that time instead. So I think yeah. that's, I've talked about this before. I think sometimes that motivational Instagram facade demotivates people because they're like, well, if I can't, you know, spend an hour and a half on the range running and gunning, then I, what's the point? You know, instead of just like you said, you know, if you do 20 push-ups, do 20 push-ups. That's it. You already, you did more than a lot of people. And then you build and build and build. So, but what's interesting about this conversation, I think between when we spoke last and now I did a video and I just had a, you know, aha moment of of you know white belt proportions but to me <laughs> if we could re if we could turn back time and get everyone on board again you know with the the lockdowns initially with the masks and the distancing and everything but also at the same time have the message because the message let's be honest the message was you can hide from this virus that's basically what people got which is such bullshit so i think the message should have been we're doing this, you know, we're slowing the spread, we're wearing the masks, you know, we're slowing the spread. You're not escaping it, but we're, we're taking the, you know, the spike out a little bit. But I want you all to assume that you are going to get this virus. 
that would have empowered the individual and it would have forced the conversations on nutrition, on health. It could, in my opinion, should have forced the conversations on what are we feeding our children at school? Why don't we put PE back in? Why don't we keep the gyms open if the fast food restaurants are open, you know, and, and do it in, a, in an outdoor space or, you know, whatever it looks like where you can allow people to still, you know, do their thing. They have parks in the UK that, that they, and, and here too, you know, they fenced off the swings and the slides and the, the monkey bars. Well, just tell everyone, you know, hey, if you're going to use it, just sanitize your hands before and after and then go, go play. You know what I mean? But there wasn't. It was that complete lack of ownership of the individual. It was taken away and it was like, look, just go in your house, shut the fuck up and we'll tell you when you can come out, which I think was the worst. I mean, you can't even use the word leadership in that sentence. It was a complete, it, to me, it just highlighted that the people that have managed to, to weasel their ways into some of these, these power positions were completely unqualified to do so because they allowed, as you said, this media storm, this division, this politicizing of people's, you know, lives instead of saying what an amazing opportunity to address the horrendous obesity and an addiction epidemic that we have in this country. And while we're mitigating this virus, we can do all these good things in the meantime. No, I, 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 I 100% agree. And I think that, you know, that old adage in politics where they say, you know, never, never let our crisis go to waste. Um, I think that's, that's where that came from. I think the other thing that, that's sad is probably just how life has always been. But really good leaders don't tend to run for politics. You know, they don't they don't run for political positions. I mean, I've been around some amazing leaders in my life in medicine and and, and in the army and, and, you know, fire and and, and EMS and and law enforcement, all that. And um, the the people that are really good leaders, the people that we really needed to step forward last year um, didn't. And um, and I think the other thing is that it. A lot of it really, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, just think about a year ago, 12 months ago, we're, we're April right now. Think about where we were in April last year. I mean, Texas was shut down. There were no schools that were open. Kids had no social outlets. Um, people weren't going to work. People were losing their jobs. Um, everything, businesses, restaurants, all the stuff was shutting down. You couldn't find toilet paper at HEB. <laughs> Can't find I mean, it in Ocala, Florida either. It, yeah, I mean, it was just, it was just the most bizarre, um, kind of just apocalyptic type worldview. And there was definitely people that were benefiting from that. And it was just, you know, egregious. And so I think that there was so much about the disease we didn't know at that point. But now that we do, moving forward, knowing how many mistakes we made as, as a global community last year, you know, it's just like it's just like anything else. When you make a mistake, uh, whether or not it's in the military, medicine, whatever in life, you just need to own it. You just need to own the mistake. You need to dissect it and analyze it and glean as much knowledge and wisdom from that mistake that you can and pack that away in your mind and never make that mistake again and grow as a result. Um, and so I think what we got to do is get away from the politics and we got to learn what we did wrong last year. And one of those, uh, things is just ignoring, uh, the fact that, you know, what a person does individually, um, what they do for their health. Um, it, it makes a huge impact on everything. And then, and, and that includes taking away their opportunity to do fitness. I mean, you remember last year, this time, like people couldn't go to CrossFit, 
all the all the gyms, Planet Fitness, Gold Gym, everything was closed. So then you couldn't find any dumbbells online. I mean, you couldn't find any workout equipment anywhere in the world, and everyone was stuck at home. And and I remember um, it wasn't Marcus Luttrell; it's his brother. Uh, I think is it Logan. Um, he did this awesome Instagram video around this time last year, and I just died laughing, but I loved it so much. He hyped up this video on Instagram, and he said he was going to tell everybody his special workout. You know, Here he is, a Navy SEAL, my special workout to stay in shape when you can't go to the gym and everything else. And I don't know if you ever had a chance to see that video. He literally walks out into his pasture, and he picks up a cinder block, and he just starts telling people <laughs> how to work out with a cinder block. And his whole point was, you can work out with anything, you know, it's like, go, go grab a bag of flour, go do pushups, do chin, whatever. And so I think that people just need to own the fact that fitness is key. Um, body habitus matters. Um, preventative medicine matters in that a lot of that has to do with nutrition, um, and, and fitness and exercise and teaching people how to exercise. Um, you know, if this ever happens again, I think people need to understand that, the this, this severe impact on mental health alone, I've seen a huge spike, everybody has across the world, alcoholism, drug addiction, drug overdoses, domestic abuse, child abuse, all of that's gone through the roof. Um, and, and it's just one of those things where when you start breaking down what was taking place in some of these homes behind closed doors, you start to understand that it, there's more than just what we're talking about, lifestyle changes, but poor lifestyle changes um, help contribute to to that other kind of underlying hidden epidemic of, uh, you know, of social disasters. So, you know, I think getting PE, getting fitness, we've talked about this before, making that a core value, a core pillar in, in public education is important. Um, you know, what we can do for, you know, the you and I haven't talked about this before, but it's very common. It is expensive to eat healthy. You know, um, it is expensive to get the lean uh, beef at a grocery store. Um, and when you only have so much money a month uh, to pay for certain things, yeah, you got to get really creative. You can get creative and save money and eat healthy. Um, but, you know, it, you're not going to go rolling up to a Whole Foods you know, and, and getting stuff from Whole Foods, you're, you're going to, to Walmart and HEB and you're getting the 70% beef, um, because maybe it's a, a dollar and a quarter cheaper than the 90% beef. So I think that's an important conversation to have too. make healthy food more affordable, make it more available, um, and, and focus a, a great deal more on diet and fitness. Absolutely. Well, I think that's the problem that we're seeing is, you know, we have this industrial farming that's subsidized and then these local farms that actually are making clean vegetables, you know, meat, whatever it is that people subscribe to in their diet. And, it, and you know, it should be cheaper because there's, you know, they're, they're in your town, they're in your county, you know, instead we have this stuff that's shipped thousands and thousands of miles that's irradiated, that's covered in chemicals, it's full of hormones. So, you know, there's so much we can we can learn from this last year and fix. You know, the processed foods are absolutely contributing to the obesity epidemic. So if we're teaching our kids in schools what real food tastes like in their cafeteria, you know, what food is in, in the classroom and, you know, where it comes from and how to grow and how to cook, because we've got a generation that doesn't even know how to cook. 
you know so it's there's so much there's so much that we could do so much actionable inexpensive things but we got to stop allowing these you know these wannabe monopolies from controlling our food sources and our water supplies and these things that are you know imperative and fundamental to human health yeah i i couldn't agree more right well with um with that i want one more kind of area and then we'll go to um to the ice storm because i mean that's an incredibly uh powerful story because you had a disaster within a disaster technically um but one more area you touched on i haven't heard about this for a long time when i was going through emt school years and years ago 2003 i think it was um and doing my clinicals i remember the er's were still full of aids patients and it was tragic you know you go in they'd be covered in the in the scabs and painfully thin and um it's just just awful awful to watch and as I've progressed through my career, you know, as an EMT and then a medic, um, firefighter medic, I realize that it seems like it's very rare now that I come across a patient. And they might tell me they're HIV, but I'm talking about an AIDS patient. So, again, talking about good news, what has science brought to that particular virus? And, you know, what are the outcomes these days? Uh, it, it's amazing. I mean, I think that, I mean, the, the, probably the most famous um, HIV patient that people can immediately relate to is Magic Johnson. And I think that he is such a remarkable human being because he is in part directly responsible for the, uh, um, the, the public response, the awareness, the fundraising, um, the support. Um, and it's, there's the issue right now for HIV, uh, and AIDS, uh, community members is, is access to care. And it, it still can get, be better. It needs to be better. Um, and, and I think that's it fees right it back into the preventative health, you know, it, but in, in programs that are very successful and for patients that can get in and get followed very closely by an infectious disease uh, doctor and they're putting uh, they're put on their HIV meds. I mean, many of these patients, um, you you their viral load is, is scarce, you know, in, in a lot of patients, uh, you can't even find anything that's, that's nominal enough to report. And it just goes to show that it was not a death sentence, you know, back in the eighties when they, when they defined it, when they gave it a name, it was a death sentence. And if you think about, you know, the eighties, how scary it was. And, and to this day, um, this, this picture always sticks with me when I see patients. And I don't re- know if you remember, um, Princess Diana did a lot of work on HIV and AIDS research. Yes. And there's this famous photo of her shaking her bare hand with an AIDS patient in his bare hand. And everyone was like, horrified that she was going to get AIDS. Yeah. And, and that's not how it was transmitted. But that's the whole point. It was politicized, right? It wasn't science. We knew how HIV was transmitted. That was the most compassionate historical moment, I think, at that time for HIV. It humanized the patient. It took them away from this this scary caricature of a of a starved and emaciated and, and sickly appearing human being, and it just made them human. Just like your brother, just like your sister, your mom and dad, they were human beings and they were they were sick. And I think that now, I mean, they're doing a hell of a job uh, kicking uh, HIV's butt. I mean, there are HIV moms 
that are followed very closely and treated uh, uh, very well, and their babies are being born without HIV. You know, I mean, it's just remarkable. Um, and so we've made a huge impact on HIV based on um, early diagnosis, uh, based on early interventions, uh, early clinic access, and of course, you know, uh, medication compliance. So it's it's been huge. I mean, it has absolutely been life changing for for everyone who who's been able to get treated. Well, that's just so good to hear because, again, you know, it, I I was a, a young boy. I remember I, I was always kind of fascinated with medicine, even as a kid, and I can clearly remember being in my dad's veterinary surgery they had in the town that I grew up in. And I got a book, I think, from the library on HIV. And I was there, eight, nine, terrified, like, oh, shit, I'm going to die of AIDS. Right. <laughs> yeah. exactly. Because it was. It was just this rampant fear. But then, you know, as we go on, I see, you know, as a responder, as a trainee responder, I see it firsthand. And it's just absolutely heartbreaking because you know that those men with – it was men that I saw with full-blown AIDS were not coming back from that. But then, you know, as, as you um, – you know, touched on the HIV earlier. I mean, it just kind of popped in my mind. Like, this is something that I've been meaning to ask someone about. Like, what are we doing differently? So, again, optimism, you know, being suppressed by, you know, politics. That is a beautiful thing that our men and women that have HIV, as well as, you know, obviously the education on contraception and, um, you know, not sharing needles, has really made a huge dent in this epidemic that we had. Yeah, it, it's just it's just remarkable. And it just takes people that are willing to see past the fog of, of fear and are saying, you know what, we're going to find a way to fix this. I mean, that's that's what I love about medicine is that there's always people in the field that are, are looking at cancer, looking at HIV, looking at hepatitis C, um, you know, looking at things like like COVID and Ebola. I mean, Ebola is is picking back up again, and um, I just went through some preparatory work for you know Ebola response teams and and how we're going to do all that. But it it takes courageous people to to gown up and mask up and walk into those rooms with patients uh, that have you know novel and and lethal illnesses, and and apply science and just apply the rules of medicine in the human body and find a way to, to make it better. And it's, it's people like that that have brought us this far. And so at those same people, just to kind of drive this point home, those same people that are using science to make life better for all of us that are discovering new things, those are the same people that, that came to bring uh, the COVID vaccines uh, to the fore. And I think that that's, that's why I believe in those vaccines and the science and the data and the people that help develop it. So it's, it's one of those things where I, I definitely would love to take medicine out of any kind of political discussions. I don't think medicine should ever be political for a bajillion reasons. And I think, if anything, this just proves that point. You know, I mean, HIV uh, and AIDS, you know, it was um, – I thought the same thing. It's like, I mean, it, it seemed like it was as easy to catch as the common cold. Um, and, and yet there was obviously a huge stigma, right? There was a, a stigma for, for this assumption that it was only for the homosexual community. It was only impacting, you know, gay men that lived in San Francisco. And it's like, no, that was, that was kind of ground zero, uh, of where there, all these horrible deaths were taking place, but it, it impacted humanity, you know, it, it impacted human beings. And so having the cur- the courage to step into that. And, and to take care of people and to find a way to make it better, 
that's what everybody did last year. Yeah. And I know the, um, you know, some of the African nations, a friend of, uh, say a friend of mine, a guest that I had on who I admire greatly, uh, Tom Hewitt started a foundation called Surfers Not Street Kids. And a lot of these kids are orphans on the street because their parents died of, of AIDS. So, you know, that, that one kind of ground zero, I think it was from Montreal, wasn't it? A, a pilot or a, an air steward that came across, um, you know, that found its way all over the planet Earth. And, you know, the affluent West, it sounds like we're doing very well, but there's still a lot of countries out there that have a horrendous AIDS epidemic still. So I hope that we can take that technology and then start helping other people with it too. Oh, 100% agree. Right. Well, then talking of medicine now, you know, sometimes if people kind of caught a, a sound bite of my conversation, they'll sound like I'm, you know, I demonize, for example, you know, pharmaceuticals. But my thing is, you know, there there are some areas where with the ownership, with leadership, you know, the, we are creating disease within ourselves that don't need drugs. They need good nutrition. They need good, you know, health practices. But then you have areas where, you know, th that focus then can be on, you know, the the pediatric cancers and all these things that aren't environmental. Um, and, you know, for example, what you've done with COVID this year. One area that I just kind of became educated on myself and it was again just common sense but someone with the the foresight to actually kind of connect the dots a firefighter a retired firefighter danny mclaughlin reached out to me he now works for a company and they are starting to partner with 911 systems using telemedicine so telehealth so someone calls 911 that ultimately would end up in your er let's say just for you know argument's sake it's a febrile eight-year-old Okay, and the parents are freaking out. It's the first kid. Um, and, you know, normally we would respond. We'd have to take them, you know, in the ambulance, go to the ER, and then you end up with, with an eight-year-old taking up a bed and, you know, a lot of your resources. What they've started to implement, and I think this is amazing for not giving patients a huge medical bill, not filling ER full of med uh, patients that shouldn't be in there, not getting um, EMS crews out of bed to respond at three in the morning. They give these people an option. Do you want us to send you an ambulance or would you like to speak to an ER physician? They have a teleconference with this physician. And if, you know, a prescription needs to be made and if an appointment needs to be made, whatever it is, if it's non-emergent, they are then put at ease. They can go to a pharmacy, pick up a prescription, whatever it is, but they never come to your ER and they never respond, you know, my peers. So, with this last year, it seems like the shackles are taken off telehealth a little bit and you guys were allowed to do a little bit more virtually. What is your, um, you know, perception on, on that concept in easing burnout in the ER and the men and women that you serve as an MD over as well? Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's, I think it's a great idea. I, um, and you're right. I mean, last year, um, it, so first of all, it goes to show you again what, what government does uh, with and, and to healthcare. There was a lot of red tape that that the entire country kind of cut through to facilitate these relationships with telemedicine, and that had to happen. There's lots of different state laws and, and federal laws about practicing medicine and, and whatnot. And so, um, you know, <clears throat> typically, you know, I like even though I'm a doctor and I can practice medicine in, in any single area of the world. Legally, I have to have a license to do so in whatever state I'm practicing medicine. And so that was a nice um, a nice recognition that was done early on to say, hey, 
um, regardless of where these licensed physicians are, we're going to start clearing up some red tape so that they can just take care of people that need help. So that was a huge advance forward. In fact, there's a few doctors that I knew that kind of pulled out of the bedside clinical practice model and are trying to spend more time at home to do uh, telemedicine services. I think that, um, you know, from a from a a business model kind of thing, I think you got to kind of figure out liability and all that kind of stuff. And so the tie in with the 911, uh, which is typically going to be, you know, local municipal municipality funded programs, I think is very unique. I think something that's similar to that that has been done, but without, you know, it would require somebody face to face is how everybody would use advanced paramedics to go out and check on people that recently got discharged from hospitals. You know, when they're looking at someone who just had CHF or COPD and they got discharged from the hospital, um, these crews would check on these these patients at home, uh, analogous to a home health nurse, but with advanced, you know, skill sets. Um, to, to make sure they were doing well and to make sure that they got their medications and that they weren't getting sicker. And, and so programs like that make a huge difference. And, you know, nobody wants to take a, their sick child to the ER at two in the morning. I mean, you're sitting in a waiting room. I mean, and unfortunately, if you've ever been in a waiting room in, in, in a large ER at two in the morning, you know, you know, some of the other human beings that happen to be there as well. Uh, some of them may have had, um, a little bit too much to drink. Some of them may be very, very sick. Some of them may be very confused. And so it's a very intimidating environment um, for for families and kiddos, especially telemedicine is a great help for them. Um, we've uh, I think the idea of using that for 911 is is really remarkable. I think that um, given that option, uh, you know, I think there's some limitations being a physician with telemedicine. But what usually gets sent to you via telemedicine intentionally are, are the lower acuity, the easy stuff, you know, and, and now what's cool is that because of last year, the technology has really, um, accelerated to facilitate these kinds of engagements to where, um, patients can actually get devices to where the physician can actually hear their heartbeat, um, uh, at home. And, and there are things that, you know, me not being very technically astute, <laughs> It's something simple like, okay, hey, use FaceTime and uh, go ahead and turn the camera around. Let me see your throat. Oh, yeah, those tonsils are ugly. Uh, that's strep. Uh, let's do a couple of things for that. Um, but there's way better technology now for that. And I think that that is – I don't think it's going to replace bedside medicine, but I think it is something that has now been created as a, a parallel tangent uh, that's a great option for people that don't necessarily need to go to the ER um, and, like you said, and, and, and have to wait. Uh, or take up a bed, or of course, you know, ER emergency departments are expensive. Not because of me. I mean, trust me. I mean, half of my patients uh, are never going to pay their bills. I, I do it because I like taking care of people and saving lives. Um, but the cost of a hospital or facility-driven point of care, um, you know, and and that's a that's a whole another podcast, just talking about why healthcare is so expensive. But um, ERs are expensive. I mean, the IV bag of flu is expensive. The Tylenol that you're given through the emergency department is expensive, um, you know, and so I think that uh, finding ways to manage these things at home and go straight to a pharmacy and, and being seen. Um, sorry, that was my eight-year-old. No worries, <laughs> my German Shepherd are pushing away. People in my now. house, and so they make noises. <laughs> you're uh, fine. <laughs> but um, anyways, I think it it is a much more cost-effective. Uh, time resourceful intervention. And I, I think that's remarkable. 
Yeah. Well, I think what, what I found was so interesting, um, was even from like a law enforcement point of view. And, you know, I don't know if, if, um, you're aware of what happened to my son at his school and he ended up being, um, sent on a Baker Act from, you know, two complete fucking idiots that made a decision that was way outside their scope of practice and reg- totally ignored any protocol they were supposed to be following. Um, and this happens over and over again in our schools. Yeah. So in law enforcement with mental health, imagine again, you have tele, a telemedicine conversation with a psychologist. You take the decision away from a law enforcement officer who's got enough, you know, to deal with, with all the skills they need and put it back into the hands of someone who actually has the qualifications to make that decision. So you call 911 rather than getting someone, you know, in attack vest and a uniform that may just their sheer presence make it worse. I'm not talking again about, you know, an emergent um, case, but someone who's upset, whatever it is, that conference might be all they need. Might be, okay, you know, we'll set you up for an appointment on Monday. Beautiful. Go see Dr. Stevens, you know, at 9 a.m. You know what I mean? So the, the then, you know, back to focusing on the responder professions, then we can maybe, you know, couple that with some very progressive things like, oh, I don't know, reversing drug prohibition. We can actually have the streets safer we can have two officers to a car we can put our you know fire stations back to full strength because you know you guys aren't you know being run ragged in the er and you actually have beds available and you know we're not holding the wall which talk about pissing me off those whole fear-mongering like oh there's patients in the hallway with with covid i'm like have you ever been to an inner city hospital there's always patients in the hallway ask any paramedic but yeah so so trying to trying to be efficient. I think what this last year has taught us as well is efficiency. There are office workers that realize I do exactly the same thing from my computer in my house and I used to commute two hours each way to do it in an office. So if we can take away some of the needless transportation of low acuity patients to an ER, we'll imagine what that would do for the doctors and nurses, the firefighters, the medics, the police officers, and they can focus more of their time on training and then more of the time also on rest and recovery so they can be more apt to respond properly. No, I, I totally agree. I think I think shifting the focus and the purpose uh, and, and really just trying to appropriately align uh, the right level of care for the lo- right level of acuity, um, that's always kind of been the, the golden goblet of medicine. I mean, and that's, you know, you... You look at an emergency department, you split it down in triage for fast track, which is kind of your low acuity stuff. And then, of course, the big trauma beds and all that stuff. But being able to actually do that prior to someone going to the hospital would, would be remarkable. And then, of course, you know, the having that that oversight, I think quality in medicine, oversight in medicine is, is crucial. And, and so having that feedback loop, seeing how those patients uh, get followed up in the clinics. I think creating something like that definitely uh, takes a lot of the burden off the uh, emergency departments. Absolutely. It was very exciting, you know, um, potential, I think. Um, Well, another area that, you know, we initially were going to talk about, it's funny, we spent an hour and a half talking about all kinds of other stuff first, but... um, (laughs) That's what I do. (laughs) (laughs) No, I love it. That's why I love this podcast. Um, But you had a very interesting thing. So... My in-laws are in your area in San Antonio. I've, you know, I've been to, to Austin numerous times. I've been in the summer, I've been in the winter. You know, usually you're not exposed to extreme, um, low temperatures. 
Whereas the you know the very beginning of this year, you know, you're still in the the throes of COVID. You guys were exposed to a pretty significant um, uh, you know turn of nature. So tell me about the you know the kind of weeks leading up to that, and then what that looked like for you know the responders and medical personnel in Texas. Yeah, I mean, I think I think uh, like you alluded to, I mean, we were already in a really bad crunch. Um, because of COVID. And I, and I think, you know, we, we talked a little bit about it last time. Um, and, and because of things and decisions and policies that were determined last year when COVID first started happening, you know, like laying off nurses and, or, you know, trying to, to furlough people because patients weren't coming to hospitals anymore because we were all staying at home. You know, that was, that was kind of a business decision. But what it did is that when COVID really hit us hard in Texas, full force going into late summer, early fall, and then of course started to peak through the winter, um, what happened was then we, we identified the fact that, man, we don't have enough nursing staff for all these patients. And, um, which means we don't have beds to put these patients in. We don't have ICU beds. We don't have floor beds. So not only do we not have physical beds, we don't have the staff that can help take care of these people in those beds. And that's what was set up what was going into Snowmageddon. And so up until that point, what was happening was, um, for example, for the state of Texas, we had what we call rack nurses, which are basically, uh, these are nurses that came from other counties, other states, uh, to hotspot areas to, to be COVID nurses, basically, and to help cover hospitals that were so uh, short-staffed. Uh, and to help them. And so every hospital in the regions would put in the request, hey, we think we need this many uh, people. And then if available, they would do that. And this is just a shout out to all those nurses that took up that role this year. Uh, you, you guys are badass. Um, I mean, the, you don't really know what their life is like, but, but basically they they move somewhere that they're, they have no family or friends, another state, another town, whatever, and they stay at a hotel. And they don't have cars. Um, and, of course, they're not allowed to mingle with the public because they, they, they can't get COVID. And they come in and bring that to the hospital. So they get shuttled from their hotel by a bus to the hospital. And then when their shift is over, the bus takes them from the hospital back to their hotel. And that's their life. And some of them are doing this for months. So that's kind of setting up what happened with Snowmageddon. So now I have I have people that... I've only worked with for a few weeks that are working really, really, really hard uh, and, and doing a, such a great job, um, you know, managing everything. And and then as we start heading to the, the, the fact that, you know, like I'm in a community hospital, I can't transfer any of these patients to our tertiary centers, which is how tertiary centers or level one trauma centers work, right? You have the, the huge teaching hospital, which usually has all the subspecialists, the, the neurosurgeons and, the, and the, the hematologists and the infectious disease people. They have all the specialties there because, you know, those specialists need lots of patients to get referred to them. And so then community hospitals refer these patients to these large hubs, these large hospitals. And you think like, like Herman Hospital in Houston or, or Mayo Hospital or a big system in Texas is Baylor, Scott and White. You know, those are like for us, that's our tertiary center is the Scott and White Hospital. Well, they hadn't been accepting patients from us for, for weeks because they were full with COVID. And so unless it was a trauma and someone was dying from a trauma, I couldn't transfer anybody to, to our tertiary hospital. 
Um, in Texas, everything's broken down in regions when it comes to trauma. And so we call it the RAC or the Regional Advisory Council. And, and so Scott and White is our level one trauma center. That's where we're supposed to send really, really bad, you know, cases. Um, I, I hadn't been able to transfer anyone to Scott and White for, for almost seven weeks at that point. So your tertiary facilities um, are full. They are not accepting transfers from community hospitals. And so this really puts the pause on community hospitals um, and, and, um, and everyone is now stuck with managing cases that they don't have the specialty uh, care for. So with that set up, now you have you know a, a big part of your nursing staff that that don't really know the facility well. Um, you have beds that are full uh, in your own community hospitals. You have tertiary centers that aren't accepting transfers, so you can't make room for new patients. Uh, and you're holding on to sicker people um, that you normally wouldn't have 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 done so you know a year ago. So everyone's already at a breaking point, and and then suddenly uh, the snowstorm hits Texas. And I think one of the things I'd like to say is is for everybody um, outside of Texas who made fun of Texas can literally just piss off <laughs> because Texans were amazing during this event. Um, they saved their neighbors. They saved one another. People moved in with each other because they had no power. They had no water. The infrastructure of Texas failed us, but Texans didn't fail. And I think that that's a very important understanding because I saw more uh, community and more fellowship that week than I had seen in, in, in years, to be honest. I shared a uh, story, just to interject, I shared a story. I think it was a couple, um, I, f I think it was a, someone had made a delivery or it was a care worker or something anyway, and she was basically cut off from going home because the roads are so dangerous. So this couple actually invited her and she stayed with whoever it was that she'd visited. She ended up staying with them for like a week. So yes, I do. I do remember that. Yeah. And that happened everywhere. You know, that it's just it was just people pulling together because we'd never seen anything like this. And so when the weather started uh, taking a turn for the worse, of course, you know, what you do in, 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 in emergency preparedness and in leadership is like, OK, um, what are we going to do for our fire stations? And then my leadership role at the hospital. OK, what are we going to do for staffing? What if people can't come in? What if people can't leave? And so hospital leadership starts setting up areas in different places of the hospital that would be sleep rooms, basically, if people had to stay at the hospital. And so we were trying to repair the best that we could. And then everything just collapsed. So when when the power grid suffered and um, they had to start what they were calling rolling blackouts. The reality is there was lots of areas in Texas that never rolled back on. They just rolled off and didn't, didn't have power. There's numerous stories that you can still see on people's media feed where they had no power, no water for a week. And, you know, we've always talked about emergency preparedness where if you really want to see what's going to happen in society um, when things collapse, um, just take away food and water for 24 hours. Um, you know, we're always talking about, we're only three meals away from society collapsing. And, and, and so that didn't happen here because of the spirit of everyone who was involved and because of the resilience of what everyone was trying to pull through. And so, um, as the roads started getting bad, what, what happened is, you know, we don't have the millions of dollars in, in budgets. We don't have snow plows. We don't have 
um, you know, salting uh, for the roads and, and all this kind of stuff. In fact, even the way some of the roads are designed, um, they're not really designed for that kind of, of snow and ice. And so we had a lot of snow, which, of course, was fun for about a day or two. And Texans love snow because we never see it. So we were excited. But then it started to rain and and frozen rain started coming down. And what we started getting was six to eight inches of of black ice everywhere. And that's where all the damage really started to happen. And this was probably, I think that storm hit that weekend before. I had worked that weekend um, and um, it was still doable. The roads were still passable. And by like Tuesday-ish, uh, going into Wednesday um, was when the ice got really bad. So now that's when all the orthopedic trauma and all the high-speed motor vehicle collisions start happening. Um, that's when suddenly people working in the hospitals couldn't go home. People that were trying to get to the hospital couldn't get to the hospital. And so you can start anticipating the mental and spiritual fatigue of everybody who's already been so stressed out after a year of dealing with, you know, a, a generational worldwide pandemic. And, um, and the traumas were, were bad. They were severe. Um, there was lots of news reports. Probably one of the the worst ones was up around the Dallas Fort Worth area. I don't know if you saw that. There was like, I think 75, 80 plus cars piled up in a massive wreck on the highway. And there was something very similar, uh, around Austin. Um, and, and what was happening in the state was that as hospitals started losing power, they had to go on their backup generators, which, you know, almost every hospital has backup generators. But those backup generators run off of propane and natural gas. And those fuel products couldn't make it out of Houston, where a large bulk of those resources were located. So it was just this domino effect where now you're this, you know, we, I kind of talked about or alluded to moral injury, you know, the other day with you. Um now you're starting to realize I, we can't do surgeries. We don't have this. We don't have that. Um, we don't have power. We don't have water. Or we're on backup and all these things you start thinking about. Um, and, and our hospital was, was very lucky um, because we were on backup power for a couple of days. But for the most part, uh, we had water until, of course, Friday when that large hotel fire happened in Killeen. And... <laughs> Um, the cities didn't have enough water to put out this Hilton fire. And so they were diverting water sources uh, from all the municipalities to give our firefighters enough water to combat the fire. And that that whole week was just an epic disaster. And, and what was happening in hospitals, Seton hospitals and like St. David's and stuff in Austin. And this is this is no reflection on the hospital leadership or the people that were making those decisions. They did everything they could without the infrastructure, uh, to support them. But, um, you know, there were, there were newborn babies and babies in the NICU that they were having to bathe with bottled water because they didn't have water. They couldn't autoclave instruments to do surgeries. And so now you got these people in these high speed wrecks, their femurs are sticking out of their, their thigh muscle, um, head injuries, head bleeds, broken spines, you know, thoracic trauma, and you're now limiting your ability to operate. You know, people are still going to do what they got to do. Um, but there was just a huge breakdown. When you take power and water away from a hospital, I mean, you just turned it into a, a really a, a field tent at that point uh, in many respects. And um, so it, it was becoming uh, very difficult um, to 
We couldn't get anybody out of our hospitals. Tertiary centers had no room for hospitals, and many large hospitals had no ability to care for these patients, so they were going on divert. And when you take a tiered system that is reliant on the tip of the pyramid, you know, the peak, which would be your, your tertiary center, and now you can't flow patients towards them, the entire system starts to, to, to crumble. And that's when you're putting patients in hallways and chairs, and that's when um, you're asking uh, you know, people to see more patients than they necessarily feel comfortable with because there's no other choice. Um, and then, so, you know, heading into Wednesday and then I think it was Thursday, I was supposed to work Friday, Saturday, Sunday, that weekend. Um, I saw the storm was, was getting worse and more, more rain, more ice was coming. Um, and, uh, I knew that I wasn't going to be able to get to work that weekend. And some of those docs, you know, they're, they were spending the night in the hospitals and I, I can't have them working back to back shifts not sleeping because that's not good either. And so I tried to drive my Jeep to the hospital and, uh, I don't want to say wrecked, but thankfully it was a Jeep, but it, it did a lot more off-roading than, than it really wanted to. I, uh, I slid off of these roads and I was, I was in four wheel drive and I had good tires and it was just, our roads are just built to, to drain water. And so a lot of these roads are kind of domed and they're slanted to one side and, and, and you, you, there's no way to move on that. And, and I couldn't, I couldn't get, uh, even a, a third of a way out of my neighborhood. I just kept sliding. I didn't want to hit somebody. I didn't want to hit someone's mailbox. And, and in a lot of parts where we were, people were, were trying to get out also. Um, and they just couldn't, I was able to finally get my Jeep back home. And I was like, I've got to get, uh, to my team. I've got to get to my doctors. I got to get to my hospital. And my, my wife was in the kitchen. It's like, what are you going to do? Um, like literally like you can't get to the hospital. I said, I got to get to the hospital. I said, if I got to hike to the hospital and granted, I live like, I think 20, 25 miles from my hospital. I was like, then I'm going to hike to the hospital. And so, you know, I, you know, I just kind of went army mode and, and, um, which of course my, my wife looking back is laughing. She's like, you're, you're in your forties. You're not, <laughs> what are you doing? Like, All right, GI Chris, I calm down. I was loading to my rucksack and I, I had some MREs and I packing water. And, and she, she was just scared to death. She's like, you're going to break your leg or bust your head open. I was like, ah, no, no. I, I do this all the time. She's like, no, we literally have never done this. <laughs> <laughs> but in my mind, I have. <laughs> yeah, but I, I can do this. I was with the 10th Mountain Division. I hiked around in snow and ice. I know what to do, you know, and of course that was years ago. So um, anyway, so then I, get, I grab a pitchfork. I was like, here, I'll use this so I don't fall. It's like, oh my God, now you're going to eviscerate yourself. It was, it was a very comical exchange, but I was stressed out because I needed to be there for my people. And, um, I was going to find one way or another to get there. So I called, uh, my fire chief and, and I said, Hey, can anybody send a unit out to get me and get me to the hospital? He said, we can't, you know, um, they could not even get our ambulances and trucks out in multiple areas of the county, especially where I was living. And um, there are videos of, of people who are trying to tow our ambulances out of out of ditches and, and off the ice because they we just we could not get patients from the field to the hospitals uh, that way either. It was very, very difficult. And, and a lot of these a lot of my team members at, at, at our fire department, the paramedics and firefighters are just absolutely amazing human beings. Um, you know, they, they are absolute family. 
And a lot of them were on shift for four or five days straight. I mean, like just straight, um, like multiple, uh, uh, EMS, um, uh, regions, their, their call volume tripled. Uh, it tripled in the severity and the acuity and the critical illness, uh, easily doubled. And yet we could not get to all these people or get to the hospital as safely and as quickly as we wanted to. I mean, everything changed, scene times changed, transport times changed, everything. And you know what it's like to be in the back of an ambulance from someone who's critical. And when you're used to being able to get to a hospital in five or seven minutes, and now it's 30, that's a game changer. You know what I mean? And you're doing that call after call after call, no sleep, no sleep, you know, no power, no water. And then, of course, all of their families and their kids are at home with no power or water. Right. And, and what, what do we all want to do? All the men and women that were working in the fire department wanted to be home with their significant others and their kids and protect them. And they couldn't. It was a very tumultuous, um, very mentally exhausting uh, week for everybody because of that. We just could not be everywhere for everybody, especially the people that, that meant the most to us. Um, so um, we, we figured out a plan to get me to the hospital. I had doctors that wrecked their vehicles on the way to the hospital, completely totaled one of their vehicles. Another doctor actually um, spun out and crashed near one of the uh, dams uh, near one of the lakes where we are. Um, and she was trying to come down from, from the Waco area. Um, I mean, doctors were and nurses I and mean, I'm speaking from a doctor's perspective, but this applies to everybody. It was doctors and medics and nurses and techs and unit clerks and respiratory therapists. And, and everybody was doing the same thing, trying to serve our fellow man and trying to serve our Texans, uh, and our community. And so I, I start hiking out of the neighborhood, um, probably went three and a half, four miles, which I've forgotten how hard it was to hike in like thigh high ice and snow. Um, I, there's no reason for me to have snowshoes, but I'm still tempted to buy snowshoes for the next snowstorm. Um, but I, I got out there and, um, they were able to get a truck, um, probably at that point it was about seven or eight miles away from my neighborhood. They were able to slowly go about 10 miles an hour down the highway. And I was like, all right, I just got to make it to that truck. And then, uh, one of the uh, the officers who was managing the uh, the truck uh, found a couple of cowboys that were just running around on their four wheelers in the snow, just having a good time. He said, "Hey, I got this old man. Can you go up the road and go pick him up?" <laughs> <laughs> I actually took videos of of this journey to the hospital. Uh, it was it was kind of comical at first, and then it was just it got to be a lot of fun. So here's this random dude. It comes like hauling butt right up to me, and I'm this grizzled, you know, middle-aged gray haired guy with a pitchfork and a big old rucksack. And, um, probably thought I was just crazy. And he goes, Hey, are you Doc Colvin? I was like, yes. He goes, I'm supposed to get you and take you down the road. And I was like, all right. So then I get, I get in this four wheeler with this dude. And then he just starts hauling butt, which honestly scared me a little bit. Cause we went up on a ravine. I just, I was like, great, I'm going to die. <laughs> I should have just walked to the hospital. And, uh, but then he gets me, uh, to, to the truck and I get in there and then, you know, it took us probably half an hour to get to the hospital when it normally would take like three, four minutes. And I got to the hospital and then I get to the hospital and it's, it's even worse than what I thought it was going to be. I mean, we, I mean, I'm not exaggerating when I say this. I, I literally walked through the ambulance bay and there were people that were holding onto their legs that were, 
you know, bent at 90 degrees in different angles, huge hematomas, head wounds, head bleeds, facial lacerations, and everyone's just in the hallways. They're on, on gurneys and, and in chairs, and everyone is doing everything they can. And so I just immediately changed into scrubs, and um, we just started doing everything in the hallway. I mean, I was, you know, some legs didn't have pulses. Um, so, you know, I'm doing, I'm doing nerve blocks and then, and hematoma blocks and, and then just reducing these, these, uh, fractures, splinting them, you know, and, and then just kept on working. And, and I think the challenges that people didn't realize that were going on behind the scenes, I think part of it is because I think some people in hospital leadership were not wanting the public to know how hard it was and how much we were struggling. But I, again, it's not a reflection on the hospitals. It's not a reflection on the leadership of the hospitals. This was just good people working in those facilities, making the impossible happen. But, you know, there were there were cardiologists that couldn't make it into hospitals. There was, um, you know, head and neck surgeons that couldn't go in for for disasters. And and so a lot of people were just having to to just stay there or do the best they could or, or try to find some means to get there. And um, I think by the time that all settled, I'd I'd been up for 40 some odd hours Um uh, and just worked all the way through the, that Friday evening. And, and, and the irony in all of this, man, the irony is it heading into that weekend, the temperatures in Texas suddenly went up to like 50. So after like a continuous week of Arctic temperatures of like negative five degree, you know, uh, days, it was going to go to the fifties. And so it was just, just like that, like overnight, it's like, you know, God just snapped his fingers and everything starts to thaw. Suddenly the roads are normal again, you know, and, and everyone's trying to get to work and do all their normal stuff again. And it was just such a bizarre thing. I, you know, and again, for the fire department, they had to cap it off with that massive, uh, massive hotel fire that Friday night. And it was really neat was there's dozens and dozens and dozens of dozens of people in that hotel and we didn't lose anybody. They got everybody out. Nobody got hurt. Nobody in the department got hurt or got sick. And it just, you know, I mean, you've been there, man. But can you imagine being on shift five days straight? And then you go into a huge hotel fire that sucks up like three cities water supply <laughs> to put out. And that's how you end your five day shift. It was nuts. I mean, those those guys are super crazy, super resilient human beings. So going into the end of that weekend, that Sunday, and this was something I really wanted, I thought was a great part of how the story happened, um, was, you know, we don't have water at the hospital. There's no food. Um, there was some food for the patients, but, um, you know, it, there was nothing for the people working. And so these people have been sleeping there two, three, four days, and now there was nothing to eat. Nobody's delivering food, right? Everything's closed. And I could just see it on everyone's face. The morale was just broken. They were just exhausted. Um, and so I just kind of <laughs> put out a, a shout out on Facebook. I actually had to take it down because I got so many amazing responses. And I said, if anybody can spare bottled water, if anybody would mind bringing us some sandwiches or something, none of us working have food. It would be great to have something to eat. It was just this huge, loving outpour of support. Uh, and, and I got all kinds of messages and, and one of the guys that responded to me was Cody Newman and he had some really cool contacts, uh, with a program 
that was actually gearing up to make a bunch of hot plates for people in the community. And when they had heard that, um, you know, people in the local fire departments, uh, were, were still stuck and we're still trying to recover and nobody had food there and, and, and nobody had food at the hospital. They changed course and they actually drove like almost three hours, uh, up to where we were and brought 325 hot plates of barbecue and the funny thing was my wife called me and she was stressed out and I, and I feel bad for this. So again, this is a public apology to my wife. Um, she was getting phone calls from all of her friends. Like, what does Chris need? What, what can we do? What can we take? She's like, what is going on? What, what did he post now? Is <laughs> literally what she asked. And, um, and we had so much food coming into the hospital. And then this team of firefighters were driving three hours to bring us food I said, hey, I don't want anything to go to waste, um, but it would be really cool if we could if we could somehow move this food to all the firefighters. And it was just it was just um, it was really cool to watch, man. I, I'm gonna get choked up, kind of kind of talking about it. But here you have firefighters that don't even know my firefighters driving three hours on roads that just a day or two prior just been complete. Um, hell and they drove all that way to bring them food because they knew how hard that week had been and they knew how bad that fire had been and they knew how long these guys and gals had had been working and so we fed everybody on shift uh for our city uh and everybody on shift in the nearby cities um and there was a lot of really really happy firefighter paramedics with bellies full of barbecue that night and it was just a great way to to close out a week that had been an uh, absolute disaster. Well, thank you for telling that story because, again, like you said, I saw a lot of that, like, you know, all the kind of mocking of Texas, same way as, you know, when there was a shooting in Texas. Oh, I thought all your guns were going to save you. That I mean, the fact that you can respond like that is, is disgusting in itself. But having been there myself, knowing that you're not too dissimilar from where I live, you know, that was a... A complete, you know, left field weather incident that, you know, it wasn't lack of preparation. No one had seen it coming because, you know, it just didn't even make sense with where you were on, on the globe, as it were. But, um, seeing your posts, and it was funny because it reminded me of the Revenant. I kept waiting for a bear to jump on top of you. But it was. I mean, here's just one person. And again, like you explained, there's all these people trying to get to the hospitals or trying to get home. And that's a very important point that the public doesn't understand. The number of times I've left my family when a hurricane's bearing down on us because I have to report to my station. So that, you know, the, the sacrifice the families make while their loved ones who are highly trained drive away from them is you know, something that's already discussed. But, um, but I mean, yeah, I mean, to get an already strained system and then as, a, you know, as happens over and over again, when the shit hits the fan, be leaning on the medical professionals, the firefighters, the police, the dispatchers, all these people. And, you know, I think there's firstly that needs to be told because of just what you guys all went through and the sacrifices you made. And again, you know, just the the resilience of, you know, these protector professions, <clears throat> but also understanding that it's okay to have the staffing, even if they're not working all day, every day, that we have to have that buffer so that when we have these incidents, we have the resources, we have the staffing, we have the vehicles so that we can respond. And this whole, you probably see in the fire service, this busy work 
mentality like oh they shouldn't be sitting around they should be you know go go check the hydrants go install smoke alarms go do whatever you know it's this we have to get away from that and understand that we we have these men and women whether it's in the hospital whether it's on the streets that are doing what they're required to do but it's okay for, for them to, to, to have an excess because when COVID hits, when the hotel, hotel fire hits, when a natural disaster hits, that's when we earn our money, you know. So getting away from this, you know, them working 24-7, we, we just seem to have found ourselves there. And, and, you know, I think that this last year has really illustrated that we are the last resort so we need to make sure these men and women are staffed adequately they're are given the right training the right rest and recovery so that when we're that front line we can actually have the resources to be effective yes i mean it's that is you know people don't think about how long it takes to train and teach a a nurse or a paramedic or a firefighter or a physician or a police officer um, you know, we, the, the amount of time and, and, and expertise and, and wisdom and stuff that happens, it's like you have to, to cultivate that and then you have to keep those resources, those people healthy. And, and you have to do it in a way to where um, you're supporting them and you're doing everything that you can to make sure that they're getting the rest that they need, the time that they need. Um, they're not getting demoralized by going out and, you know, picking up leaves underneath an oak tree. Uh, you know, you know, all the silly stuff you hear about it. It's just one of those things where it's like, look, these are your best assets. It is taking years to produce this human being that's standing in front of you who can go off and do a million things in a disaster and make it an impact on society. So value that resource, value those personnel, you know, value those human beings that do so much and, and find the means to keep them healthy and to give them the rest that they deserve. Absolutely. Well, you posted a video the other day um, from Z, Z Dog MD. Um, uh-huh. I've, I've can't remember what his real name is now, but um, it seems to be definitely one of the more middle of the road, sensible voices during this last year. But it was a very interesting perspective that he brought because he was talking about burnout, and again, it's the same theme, like constantly yeah. putting everything back on the responder's shoulders. So. Rather than burnout, he was saying, well, this is moral injury. And it's something I've talked about a lot. You know, there's PTSD and then there's, you know, I think moral injury is is the majority of what we actually endure. So tell me about your perspective of of that philosophy that he was talking about. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I wholeheartedly believe it. And I and I think that, you know, he has a he has a massive platform. Um, and uh, it it's nice to to see him make those very salient points. You know, and he's still a practicing physician, so he's still dealing with the same political uh, and corporate dynamics that I am, and, and that that other physicians are. And you know, and, and he was speaking really to the world of healthcare. I mean, again, nurses and unit clerks and and doctors, and um, you know, in in regards to a hospital setting, but it applies to everybody, whether it's it's military, law enforcement, you know, EMS, firefighters, and the idea is that. We, most of us in these fields are very idealistic. We want to serve people. We want to help people. We, 
uh, have a million different ways of saying the exact same thing, but that's the spirit that lives in, in all of us. And that what, that's what drives us to do the things that we do to sacrifice the weekends and the nights and the holidays and the sleep to do what we do because we, we want to believe that we are contributing to the greater good because we believe in the greater good. Um, we believe in, in our communities. And, and so when you're put in a position where it's juxtaposed uh, with policies or practice patterns that really damage um, our ability to do the best that we can for patients is extremely demoralizing. It is the moral injury. And you're left with trying to reconcile all the things that take place on a daily basis um, and, and still want to feel like you're making a difference and you want to feel like you're making an impact. Um, but in your heart, you know that you're not heading in the exact trajectory that you had hoped uh, to do for, for everyone that you envisioned caring for in the future. And, um, and it's, not, it's never blatantly obvious. That's the key, I think, when it comes to moral injury in healthcare and multiple other fields, is it's never one monumental moment that HR can just step in and go, oh, yeah, no, that's totally wrong. That's, no, we can't do that. It's never that. It is slow uh, microaggressions, microchipping of, of just, it's like a dinking little bitty things off of your spirit, you know, with, with a flint axe. And just chipping away at you until eventually you look in the mirror and you go, what am I doing? You know, I, I can't I can't keep doing this. You know, I know we need more staffing, but, you know, the financial gurus aren't going to approve more staffing. And so all of us are having to do the, the job of three people. And there's only so long you can burn that kind of um, tempo and 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 not feel that 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 moral injury. I think one of the things that a lot of people make and and you know Z Dog you know made this. It, it's for anybody who doesn't know him. It started off with Z Dog because he was doing like little rap battles uh, as a doctor, making fun of things in healthcare. So he was trying to uh, make make very significant comments about healthcare and the the corporate puppet strings that are involved. Um, through satire, and that's kind of how he came up with his persona. And so, you know, some people may have seen him. He, you know, Darth Vader in the Doctor's Lounge. That's a that's a famous theme that he does, and it's hilarious because Darth Vader is basically saying what every doctor wants to say in the Doctor's Lounge, but we're not permitted to do so. And uh, it's just it's a good laugh. But then he also, uh, you know, does a, does a podcast and sits behind a microphone and talks about you know things like this. And and so the idea is that. The system has to change to where money, there has to be a different way to manage reimbursement and the financial aspects of healthcare care uh, without brutalizing the people that are trying to, to deliver that health care. Um, and so one of the things that he was addressing in that video that I shared to you was the pushback that you often see from corporations is that the provider is burned out that they're they're crispy they're salty you know we use all these terms and sometimes we we, we you know like i told you earlier is that i'm pretty salty i came off with nine out of ten days um and but burnout is is a i wish there was a better term than victim shaming but he uses the term victim shaming because it 
it allows the, the, the corporate people to kind of say that doctor needs to be counseled. That doctor needs remediation. Um, you know, Hey, let's go to a wellness retreat and, um, you know, let's spend half a million dollars on a wellness retreat versus, Hey, how about we hire two more people and then we don't need a wellness retreat. (laughs) You know, it's like those kind of commonsensical financial decisions that in the trenches you don't see. And it feels like at times um, that nobody out of the trenches cares or really knows what it's like to, to be working those shifts. Being a, being an ER medical director, I, I'm, I'm middle management basically. And, and so, you know, I've, I've got a window into, into the, the true financial impact and, and the business practices of insurance companies. You know, when people talk about healthcare, I, I hate insurance companies. If you want to pick the bad guys in the world when it comes to medicine, um, you don't have to look any further than the insurance companies. And because they refuse to pay for things that you need to have done or things that are justified to be paid for because they refuse to pay, everybody involved loses money. And so I, I think, and I, I don't want to drag you too far down this road. I feel pretty passionate about this particular topic. But when people get mad about healthcare costs and, and their healthcare bill, I understand. I mean, I truly. And they'll see a doctor's fee or an anesthesia's fee or, you know, how much IV fluid costs or how much, you know, whatever. And I get it because you're getting this big bill. And what should happen is the insurance company that you've been paying for 25 plus years who've been making money off of you and, and not spending a dime on you. That's the insurance company's job to finally step up and do the right thing because you've been paying for a service that they're refusing to provide. And and so it's one of those things where when when people get mad and they say, well, I'm not going to pay this part of the bill and the insurance company is going to pay and it's the hospital's fault or the doctor's fault. What they have to understand is the downstream effects of that is now the hospital is losing money and they've done everything they can to cut stuff. So now they just fired Bob who works in the cafeteria and, and Bob is your neighbor and Bob's been working at the hospital for eight years and, and he's been very happy with that job and he, and he loves working in the nutritional department. But now the hospital has to let him go because of this game that insurance companies are playing, you know, and the same thing for EVS, you know, our, our janitorial services and hospitals that, are really kind of the unsung heroes of, of hospitals everywhere. They're keeping the floors and the walls and the beds clean and cleaning away all the virus and all the blood and all that stuff. And, and they're, they're having to be let go because of the same thing. So it's really the insurance companies. And, you know, of course that goes off on another tangent. You can argue about universal health care and all that kind of stuff. But all of that impacts how people feel when they show up at work to care for patients. All of those things, all of those financial strains, the low staffing, the long hours, uh, the lack of vacation, um, you know, everyone. Some people, when they're young and they're new to something, they love overtime. But when you've been doing a job for 20 plus years, you you probably don't want to pick up 80 hours more of overtime. You know what I mean? And and that stuff really facilitates fatigue and burnout and and we all know then as, as we talk about burnout versus moral injury versus fatigue, it's, it's ultimately uh, a huge internal dissatisfaction for the person who shows up to work every day. And then eventually they feel like I'm no longer doing what I was meant to do or what I wanted to do, what I envisioned myself doing. I'm not helping anybody. Um, I'm, I'm done and I'm leaving. 
And, and so that's something that when we talk about nursing shortages or nursing turnover, that's a huge uh, canary in the coal mine to tell you what's going on in healthcare uh, with regards to moral injury. Yeah. And when you see it, I mean, every single person can see the, you know, the telltale signs of why our system here in the U.S. is clearly not the right system. Because, you know, we have elderly people that work in Walmart, as I always give an example of, you know, a handful maybe just, just love interacting with people and think that the front doors of a, you know, mega grocery store is a place to make friends. I don't think so personally. I think that most of them are doing it because of their health insurance. So the fact that these men and women, many of whom are probably, you know, World War II veterans, um, you know, are, are compelled to continue to work so they can afford their health care, I think is, is terrible. Like you said, the fact that a Tylenol ends up being $20 on your medical bill, you know, I mean, to me, I, I try and reach out to so many different people who are involved in organizations that I think are doing it really, really well around the world. And I talk about Portugal's, you know, drugs and Norway's prisons and Finland's education. And I got to say, hand on my heart, having lived it, having seen it, the NHS, how it's supposed to be when it's funded properly, is the best healthcare system on the planet. And people, you know, there's that knee jerk, oh, social medicine, that's, you know, communist. No, it's not. Calm your tits. It's a, it's a philosophy where the UK went, the most fundamental thing that we need to provide everyone in this country is healthcare. The healthy people is, is, is what leadership is all about. So even though you can pull out worst case scenarios and go to inner city hospital and say, oh, this person died in the ER, you can do that any, any system on the planet. I can give you multiple examples of it happening here. But yeah. the difference is it's not a profit-based system. So you don't right. profit from people being sick. Our doctors in the UK still earn great money. You know, are there issues with, with some of the, the staffing at the moment? Absolutely. But just like you said, it's the, it's the bean counters. In that case, it's the politicians cutting and cutting and cutting. But when you have a system that's also not profit-based, there's a push then for prevention. I don't want to use right. my tax money on a bunch of sick Brits. So let's start pushing education, nutrition, all these things. Let's get people to stop smoking. Let's get their blood sugar under control. And is it a magic pill? No. Is it working perfectly? No. But the fundamental philosophy that was started in the 70s in the UK, I think, is such an amazing model. And it disgusts me how that's always viewed as, you know, socialized like it's some far, you know, left extreme. No, it's the principle that... The one thing that you don't have to worry about is can I afford it when my family gets sick or hurt? Right. Yeah, and it's just, it is, it, it's become such a complicated quagmire um, in, our, in our country. And it's, you know, and I've got mixed feelings about it because, you know, in many ways, I already feel like the government has a lot of control and it's not good control. Like, I really don't like CMS. Um, personally, I hate CMS. And, and I, I am not a fan of Jaco, you know, and it's people are afraid to even mention their names out loud because it's like mentioning Voldemort or something. And it's like, look, these are government entities that punish hospitals uh, by withholding financial uh, gains. Uh, CMS, for example, they won't pay, you know, two to four percent of, of Medicare um, if the hospital doesn't jump through hoops. Uh, at at the advice and the and the control of CMS, 
And CMS has us do some really, really dumb metrics. I mean, things that don't make any sense. Like they're still pushing for sepsis, give 30 cc's per kilo of fluid. I'm not going to give three, four liters of fluid to someone who has a cardiomyopathy, an injection fraction of 10%. I'll kill them. You know what I mean? But it's, it's a government-run entity, and they're, they're dangling the carrot out there. And then Jayco, I mean, we just <laughs> – I won't get into the details, right, because I, I don't want anybody at my hospital to get frustrated. But <laughs> I am appalled at the fact that Jayco's Don Quixote battles, the windmills that they decide to take on in hospitals across the country, are now having to do with uh, masking tape. On walls. So if you put up a new protocol and tape it to the wall in a hospital, it has to immediately come down because the tape is dangerous. I guess we're going to lick the tape or something, eat the tape. I don't know. I mean, obviously they're worried about contaminants and 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 infectious stuff, but it it is just amazing to me. I feel like a lot of them have jobs and they have to justify their existence. So I don't want the government to have that kind of ridiculous, bizarre control. Um, but I do, I don't see another way. I, it, it's hard because I'm a physician and I know it would impact medicine and I know it would impact uh, my livelihood, my wife's livelihood. I know that um, it, it would probably de-incentivize people going into medicine uh, in America and um, it, would, it would be a, a tumultuous time that would go on well beyond my career. And, and, and yet I also feel like all these people I take care of, I, I give them a prescription for a medicine that they need. Some of them that they desperately need. And even when we go through all these hoops and vouchers and coupons and good RX and all this stuff, they're not ever going to be able to afford that medicine. And that's the only thing that we have, you know, for their given disease process. And it breaks my heart. I mean, I'm a human being. I don't want, I don't want that. How, how does anyone live through that impossible scenario? And so then what doctors do is we try to find things that are close enough or that are generic or, or whatever. But even then, it's eating up uh, uh, patients' um, you know, finances. And then, you know, uh, for me, obviously, I know for you too, I mean, mental health. I mean, the way that it works in the United States, especially Texas, you know, if if you are funded, if you have insurance, you're probably going to find if you go to an ER and you have an acute psychiatric emergency and you have funding um, that you're there's probably going to be a facility that will accept you and transfer because you, you don't you don't keep your psychiatric patients in the ER. That's not where they need to be. They need to be getting therapy and seeing a psychiatrist and stuff. But there's only so many of those centers to go around. And then if you're unfunded, which is the the huge majority of patients who struggle with psychiatric emergencies uh, across the country, if you're unfunded, then you go via this very kind of calamitous route. You know, we use MHMR, and for our area, um, the, the MHMR caseworkers hold the keys to Austin State Hospital, or what we call ASH. And, and a great deal of Austin uh, State Hospital's admissions are actually forensic admissions, um, so those are kind of the criminally insane, you know, people that can't go into the prison system. So we don't even have a lot of beds in that center to provide the uh, unfunded mental health care needs of our region. That tears me apart. I've lost many family members, cousins that I, I love like brothers to mental illness and to drugs and to bipolar disease and depression. 
And um, I want a solution for it. I want some form of mental health care for everybody. I want some form of health care for everybody in America to where they're not having to, you know, take on two more jobs just to pay for their broken ankle because they slept on the ice in, during Snowmageddon. It's just not the right thing to do. So I, I don't pretend to have all the answers and I definitely, I don't like to complain about things without trying to provide a solution. Um, but I, I think we all know in medicine, this is not sustainable. It's not sustainable, but again, it got political. So politics got involved with healthcare and that's where we find ourselves today. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's the, 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 reason that you just gave as far as not wanting the government i think that is another thing that we have to address this last year let's say this last year forget that the last few decades we've watched our people get sicker and sicker and fatter and fatter and you know mental health being a bigger issue so it's not a left or right thing it's it's the way that we do government at the moment the way that you know the corrupt system that as you said you and i and both know incredible leaders that would never be able to get to the white house the way it is at the moment what, what I mean, that's just awful. So with a good leadership, with a good government, it would probably be a great system. But with the corruption that we have at the moment, like you said, it's, 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 you know, how do you even see that happening? But when you have a system that is coming from the, the nation's pot, as it were, you're going to be far more aggressive with prevention. With addressing, you know, the nutrition in, in the, you know, the, the farming practices, the, 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 you know, the education in, in PE, the, 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 the funding of local sports teams and, you know, all these things. So that, cause you don't want your people to get fat and sick. That's how you save money. That's how you change the healthcare system. And then God forbid you get hit by a car, you get cancer. You don't have to think about, you know, the first person that, that you see pretty much in the ER is the one with the clipboard that takes your, your social security number and starts the billing process. That's yeah. fucking awful. <laughs> These people just got hit by a car or whatever it was. That shouldn't be a thing. And I, I always right. tell people this story. You hear these worst case NHS stories. Let me give you a best case. My grandfather was 99 years old, riddled with cancer. And I watched firsthand, I flew over there and literally got to hold his hand when he died. Watched him have the most amazing care. He had paid for years for an extra private insurance called Bupa in the UK to the point where they price him and my grandmother out of being able to afford it anymore. When they finally would have needed to, to, as you said, actually use it, they priced them out and they weren't covered anymore. The NHS provided home visits from our doctor who'd been our family doctor for years. We had home nurse visits. Um, you know, hospice came in. They gave him a med, you know, a, a, um, a hospital bed. They, they, I mean, they were just absolutely incredible. After he passed away, they helped to the transition, you know, with once, uh, his body had been taken away. And then they still continued to visit my grandmother for about two weeks after that. That's the NHS. That is the face of the real NHS. But you don't hear that story over here. You hear about the dude that, you know, waited 12 years for a knee replacement or whatever bullshit story that they, they, you know, they like to sell us over here. It's about compassion and kindness. And to me, right. a proactive system like that promotes proactive health initiatives, proactive mental health initiatives. But while our system, and as you mentioned, the insurance companies and drug companies are making money hand over fist on the ill health of Americans, 
we're, we're, it's only going to get worse and worse. And our doctors and nurses and medics and EMTs and everyone else, like you said, custodians, they're all just pawns in this this giant, you know, chess game that is squeezing every single penny out of the people that are supposed to be, you know, um, insuring or, or, you know, healing. So if we took out all that nastiness when it comes to our healthcare. You have the doctors and nurses focusing on the really sick people and addressing the issues that are out of our control. So to me, as a human being, from a compassion and kindness point of view, the we'll all chip in and take care of everyone model, which seems to me very Christian, Buddhist, Hindu, whatever you want to call it too, is the best model. But we have to take that corruption element out of it so that we allow it to be in its purest form again. Right. I mean, that's the only way it's going to succeed. I mean, it, and I think that in, in that that beautiful description that, that you just gave uh, your grandfather, that's really how it should be. That's really how medicine should always be. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think that's just it. So, you know, I, I, I hope that as we progress that we can start having the humility to look at other countries that are doing this particular area, whatever it is, better and say – Wow, that's working well in your country. Let's change the way that we've always done it. Just like you said with COVID. One thing that never happened during this last year, no one ever went, hey, great news. It's not as bad as we thought it was going to be. Our researchers and doctors are making incredible headway now in the ICUs, in the ERs, in the labs. You know, so it's not, uh, we screwed up. No, it's, it's getting better. But no one ever said that. They kept us, you know, they kept the same bullshit facade all the way up till right now, you know. So I think you have to have a true leader goes, hey, here's what we thought on this date. Here's where we are now. We've tried, you know, drug prohibition. We've tried our healthcare model. It's really not working very well. So this is what we want to start doing. This country over here has had these amazing results. So why don't we start thinking about that, you know? But again, that that greed and, and corruption element has to be taken out. And we as a people have to identify that first and take power away from the people that are costing American lives, you know, over and over and genocidal numbers, basically. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, I, I wish we had a very, um, humane reset button, <laughs> you know, it's like, get, get, get these massive lobbying groups out of, out of, um, DC and, and let's let, you know, people spend some time trying to make good policies uh, for America and then they can go back to their normal lives. You know, don't be a lifelong politician. Um, you know, in the beginning of our country, I mean, people didn't really want to go and, and be a part of the political process, but they kind of treated it like jury duty, you know. And so they they left, you know, their their industries and their farms behind to, to go try to create a better country. And then when they were done, they were done and they, you know, came back and they enjoyed their farms again. And, and I think that all that was, was obviously different historically and for different reasons, but getting to a point where people were actually trying to serve in political office to actually help other people and not serve themselves, that takes a very unique human being. And I don't know if that's really sustainable anymore. So we just need, uh, 
We just need George Washington to come riding up on his his horse <laughs> and hit, hit the reset button. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I think you know that's what's great, and I'm going to transition to to some closing questions, so we can let you go in a second. But what is great about this medium, and I'm talking about this show specifically, but just in general, we're able to circumnavigate the boundaries. I just listened to a great conversation with Jocko Willink and um, Tulsi Gabbard. She's actually coming on this uh-huh. podcast, you know. But oh, cool. now you get to hear someone whether it's dan crenshaw whoever you whoever your dude or dudette is that you think you align with get the here for an hour and a half two hours and really go okay all right i understand you know this is this person that thinks this way it's not who i'm gonna vote for but i get your perspective now i've unpacked it completely and i think now that is gonna force us to really demand change because i think this last year has really ripped the curtains back and we see the wizard of oz for who he is you know what i mean really so and this is not a left or right thing this is a systemic thing that we have to change absolutely well so transitioning um you wrote uh two books now in the hippocrates and the hobgoblin series so tell me about um how they're doing so far and then is there another one on the uh, horizon uh, yeah, no, they're, they're doing great, man. It's, um, it's been really fun. Um, you know, I, I, I wrote the first book in, uh, 2018 and I released the second book in December, uh, of 2020. So just a few months ago. And, um, it's just continuing to, to do well with, with reviews and, and sales and, you know, fantasy is a big, kind of a big market. And what I'm really trying to talk about in these stories and this journey that I take the reader through is, is in a lot of ways, uh, mental health and, and how we treat one another, uh, in terms of, of a fantasy that's set in the afterlife. And, um, and I'm just about done outlining the third book. Uh, I've written the first chapter of the third book and, um, you know, it's, I mean, you know, it's a lot of work to write a good book. I don't think people realize that it's a lot of extra time. It's staying up late, getting up early. Um, and, uh, it takes a lot. I mean, it takes me a couple of years to write, uh, one of the books in the series. And I was a little tired the other day. I was like, I wonder if I can just write the third book and it's done. And it's just, it just can't be done. The things that I've set up in the first and second book will start to really, um, kind of weave tighter together through the third book and, and then of course culminate with the fourth book. So it's going to be a four book series. Um, and, uh, you know, just for people kind of new to the book or new to the idea, it, it's Hippocrates, uh, reincarnated. And, and so Hippocrates was kind of the founding father of medicine. And so in this most recent life, and uh, he, in the first book, he wakes up in the afterlife, not really sure, understanding what what he is or why he's there or how he got there, because the the character at that time in his life, his name is Creed. Uh, moments ago, he was an ER doctor uh, in the emergency department trying to manage uh, a very sick uh, homicidal patient. So he wakes up in the afterlife, and and the first book is about the journey of him kind of rediscovering who he is. Uh, meeting up with his longtime friend Ojin, who who's a hobgoblin, um, and um, and ultimately trying to identify his purpose, and that's to try to rescue the souls uh, that have been uh, punished and and almost cursed to damnation simply for having mental health on Earth, and and that, those are the deep themes uh, woven throughout the books. But it's a it's 
if you just like to disappear and, and have a superficial entertaining read, uh, it definitely, uh, is there and hits the mark for that. Um, you escape into, you know, a magical world and, and, um, there's magical beasts and, and ogres and trolls and, and mountain ranges and, and, um, deep cavern systems and epic battles and, and all of that. And, and so then with the second book, it, it kind of picks up a few years after the first book. And, uh, of course there's lots of surprises and, and, and plot twists and stuff throughout the first and second book. So I won't give too much detail there, but through the second book, um, Creed, our main character, uh, continues to, to try to, to seek out what he can do to stop this advancing movement of Laterum, who is ultimately uh, death personified. And he's trying to build his army to release his brother Akram uh, from the Undevel, which people would you know consider to be hell. And in doing so, with the second book, it's called uh, Hippocrates and the Hobgoblin, the Cities Infernum, uh, Laterum has to reconstruct this throne that was made of... Um, of kind of calcified bodies of their fellow immortal brothers and sisters to rebuild this altar to release Akram from the Undevale. And of course all the, uh, all the plot twists in between. So it's been a, it's been a great journey. I've been able to talk about things that are very important to me, but through the voices of characters that that's what makes fiction kind of fun. You can kind of explore things that are scary or sensitive um, in an entertaining fashion um, and, uh, you know, everyone's that's read it's really enjoyed the journey. Um, they, it's, I, what I enjoy most right now about all of this are the questions I get about it. I like it when someone, Oh, what's going to happen to this person? Or, or, or what did this mean? Or is this going to happen? Because I think this is going to happen. And that for me is, is probably my favorite thing to do. Um, I didn't get to do any book signings last year, but I'm going to set up some book signings, uh, this summer now that things are opening up again and, and people are getting vaccinated and that's where I get to have a lot of that interaction. Um, and, uh, it's been going really well. I've, I've enjoyed it. I've, I've just had a really, really fun time with it. Um, for people that are short on time and, and you just kind of went through this when you created your audio book, uh, I hired some actors out of London, um, and, uh, Cameron and Gemma, uh, a male and female actress. We got a, uh, a second actress to, to play the voice of a small child in the second book. Um, and they did a phenomenal job with, with both audiobooks. And so that's, of course, on, on Apple and, and um, uh, Amazon and Audible. Um, but it's been, it's been a great journey. I've met so many amazing people. Um, I, I hire independent artists um, to, to do the illustrations for the books. And so this is their original artwork. Um, I get to hire specific editors that I get to work with and I've learned a lot and, and enjoyed my relationships with them. And then of course, Cameron and Gemma have been just amazing, uh, with, with the way they brought, um, all of my characters to life. And a lot of these, all of these characters are based on people that meant a great deal to me in my life. And some of them are no longer with us. And so I really tried hard to, to do their memories, uh, uh correctly and with a great deal of honor and, and it's just a lot of it's a lot of exciting things. And if you want to if you want to geek out and you want to you're the one who really likes to read uh, the message behind the message when you read Tolkien, uh, there's a lot of that in there for you, too. Beautiful. Well, you definitely forced me as well to kind of revisit the creative side of my brain because so many of the books I read are, you know, biographies and, you know, they're they're real life stories. So and then, you know, some of the even the fictional stuff is still kind of 
it's still based on on Earth as we know it. So when I started reading it, I mean, it was a it was fantastic, but B, you forced me to start painting that picture in my head, which I haven't for years. So I really enjoyed that element of it too. Oh, well, thank you. Um, I've had a lot of people tell me it's like I feel like when I read this, I'm I'm actually there. Um, and uh, I was like, well, great. So I did my job. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's a lot of those images actually come out of my I mean my dreams, um, and it's it's. It's vivid to me, and I try to recreate that um, that that vivid uh, sensation and that, and that picture in, in the on the pages. So it's it's been wonderful. I've really enjoyed the journey. Uh, I've met a lot of amazing people because of it. Beautiful. Well, where can people find the books? Um, so Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble. Um, you know, Amazon. The way Amazon works, and you know, like like what you did. You know, by publishing with Amazon, they also work with lots of other other parties and. Um, in bookstores and so you can order through them uh it's on kindle um so if, if you like to read kindle on your iphone or you actually have a kindle device or an ipad uh easily you can pick it up there uh and then of course you know on audible and, and audiobook uh, formats brilliant and if people want to reach out to you specifically what are the best places to find you um uh you know honestly it would probably be uh on instagram at pondering corpus um, I did just start a new, uh, Twitter page, uh, and it's, it's literally just my last name. Uh, so it's at Colvin, um, uh, under dash, uh, MD. And so Twitter, Instagram are, are where I get a lot of my, my interactions. Brilliant. Well, Chris, I want to let you go, but I just want to say thank you so much. It's been so much great information. I love, you know, in any conversation that we have, but when, when you get someone who actually has seen with their own eyes, you know, certain areas and they also stand in the middle of, you know, the, what I call the common sense arena, um, it just has so much power because we don't hear these conversations. We don't hear these perspectives. We don't hear, hey, this is where science is absolutely right, you know, and this is what we're seeing and it's optimistic, you know, but there's also real things happening. And, um, you know, these are the messages that should have been put over a long time ago. And I know we've, we've learned as we've gone on, but there's so much white noise out there at the moment. So thank you so much for coming on yet again and spending two and a half hours of your time educating us all on, on the things that you've seen this last few months. Hey, I, I always enjoy it. Thank you for having me. And uh, it, it's, it's, it's been a lot of fun. So thank you. Thank you.